I was reading an article the other day about an Aramco exploration team looking for gas in the southeast region of the Arabian Desert called the Empty Corridor or Rubak Ali. They discovered the skeletal remains of a human of phenomenal size. It is stated in the Quran that God created people of phenomenal size, the like of which he has not created since. These were the people of Ad, where the prophet Hud was sent. They were very big and tall and very powerful, such that they could put their arms around the trunk of a tree and uproot it. Later, these people who were given all the power turned against God and the prophet and transgressed beyond all boundaries set by God. As a result, they were destroyed. Alemas of Saudi Arabia believe these to be the remains of the people of Ad. Saudi military has secured the whole area and no one is allowed to enter except Aramco personnel. It has been kept in secrecy, but a military helicopter took some pictures from the air which have been leaked to the internet. In one of the photos, a man can be seen kneeling next to the skull of the remains, and the skull alone is larger than he is. Have you heard the story of- and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This is telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. And we're back. We're back. We missed you so much. But you know what? It was cold here and it freaked us out. So we hid. And hibernated. Like little gophers or rabbits or some kind of burrowing animal. For our one week of winter. (laughs) It was terrifying. I don't know how you Yankees do it. But we are back with a big story. And before we get there... We want to thank all of you for coming back in this new year. We've got tons of great, fun episodes planned in the coming weeks. We think they're fun. They're probably morbid and disturbing, but you know, same, same. Fun. Like you said, fun. And we do want to thank everyone that's left rating and reviews on iTunes. We do appreciate that and hope that you will help us out by leaving us a rating and review. You can also check us out on social media at Just a Story Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check out our website. We have a website. That's true. So it's at justastorypod.com, and there you can find links to our sources, artwork for each episode. You can stream the episodes, too. That's the thing you want to do. You can actually download them. You could download them, and then you could put them on your iPod that also came loaded with Vertigo by U2. Ooh, or you could burn a (laughs) CD. (laughs) That's funny. We have a, a burned CD of This American Life that we made for a road trip once. It was a few years ago. That was a day or two ago. On our website, you can also find links to Patreon, and there you'll have access to all sorts of extras, fun episodes. We're going to be doing our first meetup of the year in the coming weeks. Stickers. You forgot to say stickers. I would never forget stickers. And we have a funny little prize you'll get if you sign up. It's stationary. (laughs) Your favorite. Because I'm Southern. (laughs) Um, And we do have a few new patrons to thank, including Dorothy, Heather, Danny, Mary, oh, and Lily. So, just in case you're wondering, we've kind of been playing with the format on Patreon a little bit, and we have decided that we are going to try and focus our mini-sodes, baby pods, what era they are, to go along with our big episodes. Like, to be an extension of them, just to be a little bit more in-depth, because, you know, sometimes you can't say it all in three hours. It's true. Or two episodes, whatever. So, and last but not least... Lest we forget, it would be terrible if we did, we have an Urban Legend Hotline. And you can reach that number by dialing 
888-253-3375. And when you get to our voicemail there, you can tell us your favorite scary story. You can tell us a thing you heard about the camp you went to or what they say about the abandoned house down the road or any other form of urban legend you would like to share or just thoughts and feelings. Sing us a song. You can sing us a song. hmm. No, you're going to love it. (laughs) All right, Sam. No, I bet a bunch of people that listen to us are in a musical theater. They're going to do a whole arrangement. It'll be great. (laughs) Sounds fantastic. All right, Sam. Well, back to our big story at hand. My, what big hands you have. Big everything. Big everything. Ew. Mind in the gutter. Who's mine? Yeah. Always. Probably. All right. So there has been an email that has had a few iterations that Mm -hmm. has circled around the interwebs. Okay. The tubes. And it is a news story. Mm Mm-hmm. Including photos. There are photos, you say. About an amazing discovery. A giant human skeleton has been found. Where? Well, it changes. (laughs) Oh. So one is in Saudi Arabia, and that news article talking about it was published on April 22nd, 2004, and this was published in a real paper. Not fake news. No, no. Well, well, (laughs) it's the New Nation, which is Bangladesh's independent news source. Cool. The oldest English daily of Bangladesh. How old is it? (laughs) The website says it. Okay. So the article says... Recently, gas exploration is going on in the desert of southeast region of Saudi Arabia. This desert region is called the Empty Quarter. The body has been found by Aramco exploration teams. This proves what Allah said in the Quran about the people of Ad Nation and Hud Nation. They were so tall, wide, and very powerful that they were able to pull out big trees just with one hand. But what happens after... When they became misguided and disobeyed Allah, Allah destroyed the whole nation. Ulima Karam of Saudi Arabia believes that this body belongs to the Ad nation. Saudi military took over the whole area and nobody is allowed to go in the region except Saudi Aramco personnel. Saudi government has kept it very secret, but some military helicopters took pictures from air and one of them runs on the internet here in Saudi Arabia. It sounds like someone in a troll farm wrote it. No, it's not that. It's not. It is not the same kind of... Intent? Providence. Yeah, so it's not propaganda. Well, it seems a little bit like propaganda. It didn't start that way. So there was another version published in March 2007, an article in, in India's Hindu Voice Monthly, claiming that a National Geographic Society team in collaboration with the Indian Army, had dug up a giant human skeleton in India. Recent- I was about to say Native American. No, no. <laughs> Sorry. They're Indians. Sorry. Recent exploration activity in the northern region of India uncovered a skeletal remains of a human of phenomenal size. Discovery was made by the National Geographic Team, India Division, with support from the Indian Army, since the area comes under jurisdiction of the Army. So this is another giant skeleton that's popped up now in India, right after the one in Saudi Arabia. Right, but it's the same photo. Oh, no. And there are a few photos kind of roaming around the internet of these giant skeletons, and they have people, like, digging them up. Right, for for size. Yeah, like an archaeological dig. Yeah, Yeah. And that couldn't be fake. Of course not. So the Hindu voice editor admitted to National Geographic News that his publication was taken in by these fake reports. But they just didn't vet enough. So it wasn't meant to be propaganda. They just did not vet their sources thoroughly enough. Right. 
Okay. And of course, they had to issue a retraction. A giant retraction. One could say. Mm-hmm. They said, we are against spreading lies and canards. Canards? I know. <laughs> underused word. Moreover, our readers are highly intellectual class and will not brook any nonsense. Brook it? I know. This sounds like something straight out of yellow journalism. <laughs> so the National Geographic News did have to release a statement saying that they had not discovered ancient giant humans, despite rampant reports and pictures. <laughs> It's just what they want you to think. Exactly. And they issued that because there was a continuing flow of emails to National Geographic News from around the world asking about it. So obviously somebody was real good at Photoshop. Like, really good. Right. Kind of like I was saying, the intent of this is more along the lines of a kind of creepypasta or a slender man. So this is somebody that was like the best at Photoshop. Somebody won something or... You know, participated in a contest of some sort, I assume. Yeah, just like Slenderman. It was a contest put off by the site Worth 1000. Oh, that's a fun site. Where entrants vied to create the most realistic archaeological hoaxes, saying your job is to show a picture of an archaeological discovery that looks so real, had it not appeared at Worth 1000, (laughs) people might have done a double take. Mission accomplished. (laughs) So the image most often circulated was created by Iron Kite. It started with an aerial photo of a mastodon excavation in Hyde Park, New York in 2000. He then digitally superimposed a human skeleton over the beast's remains. So that's probably why it worked so well, because you could choose the areas that were exposed. There were already areas that would have been barely bone peeking right, out. Right, That's why it was so effective. So Ironkite said, I laugh myself silly when some guy claims to know someone who was there, or even goes so far as to claim that he or she was there when they found the skeleton and took the pictures. Sometimes people seem so desperate to believe in something they lie to themselves or exaggerate in order to make their own argument stronger. You don't say. And it was even featured in a YouTube video entitled Proof Evolution is an Evil Lie from Satan, parentheses, the Devil. Thanks for clearing that up. I appreciate the clarification. The parenthetical adds something to it, I must say. Hmm. Yeah, I feel that this has been taken out of context a a smidge. A bit. But it's interesting because it's used in different ways. So in Saudi Arabia, they talk about it being related to stories in the Quran. Mm -hmm. And in that video, they're talking about the Nephilim. Right. The giants in Judeo-Christian text (laughs) of the Bible. So one version from India kind of took it a little further. Now, they kept the empty quarter name of the area. What's that, there? Nothing. It's empty. Saying the exploration team also found tablets with inscriptions that stated that our gods of Indian mythology, Brahma, had created people of phenomenal size, the like of which he has not created since. They were very tall, big, and very powerful, such that they could put their arms around a tree trunk and uproot it. Oh my God, it even borrows the... Mm-hmm, exact mm-hmm, example mm-hmm. that's used in the Bangladesh English language newspaper, the oldest one, I'm told. Oldest in Bangladesh? Yeah. One of the sons of Bhima of the Pandava brothers is also thought to have been carrying these genes. Later, these people who were given all the power turned against all our gods and transgressed beyond all boundaries set. As a result, they were destroyed by the god Shiva. What a way to go, though. So, in the Mahabharata, one of the two major Sanskrit epics of ancient India... It features a narrative of the Kurukshetra War, 
along with some philosophical and devotional material, such as the Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita. Okay, I can only think of like the 60s song. <laughs> fair, fair. But in the epic, you have Gatakacha, who is a warrior who had magical powers given to him by Krishna. He's eventually killed by a kind of like one and done divine weapon. What do you mean one and done? Like you can only use it once. That gimmick needs to be employed way more. It's good for mythology for sure. Well, and superhero movies. This is yeah, naturally where definitely. my mind went. Yeah. Which is our modern day. <laughs> yeah, true. Okay. We'll do an episode on that one day. The new it's Pantheon. It's a good idea. But he's killed by the great warrior on the other side of the battle. Some versions of the story say he, when he was struck with the weapon, he became gigantic, crushing parts of the army. Or he was already gigantic in the first place because he had the powers to kind of change size. And then, like I said, some of them are the Nephilim, which we talked about mm-hmm. in our Angels episode, which were the savage giants who pillaged the earth and endangered humanity, mixing with some of the people and, you know, creating the new world order sometimes, depending on what YouTube video you watch. They might be reptilian. They might be shiny. Or aliens. Yeah, it just all depends. They were destroyed in the flood, so it's fine. <laughs> or were they? Or were they? Bum, bum, bum. That's just what they want you to think. I feel like I could say that through this entire episode. So what about the Quran, the, the HUD? Oh, okay, so the Odd are a great and ancient people frequently mentioned in the Quran who built monuments upon high places. And some of the kind of quotes from the Quran are like, As for Odd, they were arrogant upon the earth without right and said, Who is greater than us in strength? Did they not consider that Allah who created them was greater than them in strength? But they were rejecting our signs. So the prophet Hud, a pre-Islamic prophet to the Arabs, was sent as a warner slash messenger, which is one type of prophet in Islam. And to the odd, their brother Hud, he said, Oh, my people, worship Allah. You have no deity other than him. Then will you not fear him? But they rejected him. Meh. Happens. Called him a liar. Ugh. Didn't go over well, I'm sure. And then Hud says, Then do you wonder that there was come to you a reminder from your Lord through a man from among you that he may warn you and remember when he made you successor after the people of Noah and increased you in stature extensively. So remember the favors of Allah and you might succeed. So they survived the flood or they came after the flood. Right, after the flood. Okay. And may I just say before we go any further that Arrogant Upon the Earth would be the best emo band name ever. be fantastic. Too bad emo's done. You see that line, that stature? Stature. That doesn't have to mean physical. Exactly. Oh. So here's a few other translations Mm. of that line. Gave you growth of stature. Mm -hmm. Gave you stature tall among the nations. And increased you amply in stature. It's the stature thing. Yeah. Can be read two ways, no matter how you... They might be giants. That's what it is. Again. Again with the names. (laughs) That already is taken. So they're destroyed. Too bad. (laughs) Screaming violent winds, which Allah imposed upon them for seven nights and eight days in succession. So you would see the people therein fallen as if they were hollow trunks of palm trees. Then do you see of them any remains? So it explicitly says, like, their bodies didn't stick around. Like, they were covered by, like, a huge sandstorm. Mm-hmm. So, the people of Odd are considered one of the kind of original lost Arabic tribes. Okay. They are also known as the Aram of the Pillars because the city was supposedly 
huge and big and it's kind of like the Atlantis of the desert. Cool. And Hell people, of a pitch. Yeah. And, and people, you know, it was the center of trade and technology and the smartest people were there. I feel like a lot of lost civilizations doubled as levels on Super Mario. Giant world, underwater world. Definitely. Yeah. This is probably it. But, you know, and you get those kind of sightings and stories of people finding the remains of the city of Odd or the pillars. And it's also said that the Israelites had to fight the remnants of the tribe of Odd when they entered the Holy Land. I mean, they just trot them out whenever they need them. <laughs> it's, it's very symbolic. Right. You see. Yeah. <laughs> so there are other mentions of giants in Islamic writing, such as in the Hadith, saying Allah created Adam, making him 60 cubits tall. How tall is 60 cubits? 27 meters. That's bigger than feet. That does not seem practical for getting around. So it says that the first group of people who will enter paradise will be glittering like the full moon of those who will follow them, will glitter like the most brilliant star in the sky. They will not urinate, relieve nature, spit, or have any nasal secretions. I guess that the gross stuff just should not apply to them. Sure. Like, okay. (laughs) Their combs will be of gold and their sweat will smell like musk. I suppose they mean that in a good way. (laughs) Not musky or musty. I'm thinking musty. Musty is different. Okay. Musk is good. Musk is good. Must is bad. (laughs) Must smell of musk. All of them will look alike and will resemble their father, Adam, in stature. 60 cubits tall. So that to me is interesting. My natural response to this is that would be terribly impractical. And, you know, everything's like scaled to be like handy for humans. But I guess like looking back, you did have giant mammals. Exactly. So if you're like, why is this sloth? Not, I guess you would be looking at sloth, but in theory, why is this sloth so much smaller than the old sloth? Clearly, they used to be super awesome, and they didn't pee or poop. And now, sloths are tiny, and they pee and poop, and that's so sad. People clearly must have been the same way. The pee and poop thing throws me for a loop. I don't get that one. But the size thing, I can see, like, like if you could look at a fossil, and you could be like, that is a giant armadillo. But could they? That's the question we'll get to later. It's a good theory. So, in more fundamentalist reaches of Islam... Or in the older times, people thought that everyone started bigger and got smaller. So do they think eventually, would it continue? Or were we as small as we were ever going to be? We might keep getting smaller. So giants are quite a popular topic of conversation and conjecture in mythologies from around the world. Everywhere. Everyone loves a giant. Giants are everywhere. Or maybe more appropriately, they were. Because it's always like, they used to be. They used to could be giants. Maybe. And so Ireland is no exception. Of course. So in Ireland, there was Balor, who is king of the Fomorians, a supernatural race who were said to be the early settlers of Ireland. The Fomorians were similar to the Jotnor. Who, right, like the, right, like the giants of your Norse mythology. Like Loki. Right. Like ice giants? Yeah. They were the frenemies of Tuath the Danon and other pre-Christian Gaelic gods. Baylor was a one-eyed giant and the god of death, fun for him, and whoever caught his gaze would die instantly. Very Sauron. No, that's not good. Baylor kept a single eye closed until his terrible power was needed. Thanks. You want him giving you the evil eye? He had it. So according to the prophecy, it was said that Balor would be killed by his own grandson. So he imprisoned his daughter, Ethlyn, in a crystal tower 
in a vain attempt, always a vain attempt because it's mythology, to prevent her from having any offspring. Well, it wouldn't be much of a story if it worked. (laughs) However, before long, Kyan, a minor god, sneaked into her crystal tower. No symbolism. (laughs) And made it a vain attempt. And she gave birth to three sons. Now, on discovering that he had had three grandsons that he did not care to have, Belor kind of lost his temper and, you know, had them thrown into the sea. Who wouldn't do that? But one boy, Lou, Lou, escaped his fate and was fostered by Nanan Maklir, the god of the sea. And the prophecy finally played out when Lou led the Tuatha de Danan into battle and killed Belor by ripping out, what do you think he ripped out? His eye. His evil eye. Evil Eye ripped it out. Ton. Now, of course, you do have the Jotunheim, the Norse ice giants, which are super fun. And do recommend checking out Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology book. Because if there's one person we can't say it better than... It's Neil Gaiman. It's Neil Gaiman. So one race of giants existed in the Basque region of Spain. Now, these were the Gentil. They were giant and strong and covered in hair. But they lived peacefully with the Basque people, and they were said to be extremely strong and could throw enormous rocks very far. Why were they throwing rocks? Why not? <laughs> okay, I guess if you can, you should. Right, use your talents. In theory, I can run. That's a thing I'm mm-hmm. engineered to do, but I don't, I don't. I guess if something was chasing me, I'd run. So a lot of t- places in the Basque region, there are these big rocks that are called gentilari. Ah, I see what you did there. I see what you did there. It was also said that they built many stone circles and dolmens all over the area. So they're pretty much like considered the constructors of all these you know, megalithic monuments. So kind of stonehenge looking things. Right, exactly. And so the most logical explanation is, yeah, you remember those hairy giants we used to have? They built that. Mm-hmm. And people would say, why? And they'd say, why not? Why wouldn't you? And then they'd eat food with eggs and take a mid-afternoon nap. Ah, to be in Spain. (laughs) But they were also the first miners, the first farmers, and first blacksmiths. So they taught humans all these skills. Oh, very Prometheus in that way. It is, and also the Nephilim did that Mm -hmm. as well. But you can see that there are um, a lot of trades and practices that are very integrally connected to the earth and working with the earth. You're right, you're right. Giants are very much... Like, you don't have a lot of water giants or air giants or fire giants. Like, they seem to be very terrestrial. Makes sense. They are usually associated with mountains and things like that. Big trees. Yeah, and they did live kind of up in the mountains. Mm-hmm. So, on one occasion, the Gentile saw a shining cloud approaching from the east while they were playing on a hill. <laughs> what were they playing? Like, duck, duck, goose, I hope. Stone throwing. Oh, God. Clearly. Scare. They spoke to a wise old man. When the old man saw the shining clown, he said, Kicks me is born. Now our stock will die out. Please throw me down a cliff. They spoke to an overdramatic old man, you say? It was very dramatic. So he threw the old man and headed running to the west, escaping from the cloud. And when they arrived to the valley of Arazataran, they hid under a big stone. Is that why they'd been hiding them around, like moving them places so they could hide under them later? Maybe. (laughs) This planning and forethought, you see. And sometimes they throw themselves off a cliff. Stories vary. Cool. So the Gentile giants die out with the coming of Christianity. So they're heathens. Yeah. Or Gentiles. Ah, 
I see what you did there. You see that? I do. I didn't do it. So there was one giant that stuck around. I bet he was a cool guy. Depends on the story. Oh, God. His name was Olenzero. Now, some versions have him as the only giant converting to Christianity. Oh, I bet he's like a folk saint somewhere. I bet you can get a medal. Oh, well, he has a little bit of a different role. So now he serves as a bringer of gifts during Christmas. <gasps> giant Santa. Believe it or not, we'll come back to that. <laughs> Although he began as more of a boogeyman who had a sickle and would slit children's throats who stayed out at night. And was there like, you know, like a generation of children who when they grew up to adulthood were like, that shit was fucked up. We're not doing that to our kids. Let's be better parents. And then he became a nice Santa. So it actually changed after the like Spanish War. Oh. Civil War. Okay, well, at least some things worked out for the better. <laughs> so in Dima, a straw puppet dressed as Olenzero with a sickle would be hung from the church tower after the midnight mass on Christmas Eve. And if children had been behaving badly, people would say that he was going to come for the children. Clearly, and slit their throats with his sickle. Oh yeah, some parents would even throw a sickle down the chimney to warn the children that he was coming. I miss parenting like this, Jacob. <laughs> I would do that. You know I would do that. <laughs> see, there's a physical activity that I don't do that I now see a use for. Climbing to the roof. See? You could scare your children that way. I know. So now I want to throw rocks. So in Scotland, many landmarks, as we mentioned, when megalithic structures appear or weird geological formations happen, a lot of times they're assigned their own explanation via mythology. Right. I mean, that's just logical. Yeah, because those rocks come from glaciers. <laughs> Giants throw them. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. Stop being stupid. But in Scotland, you know, no exception to the rule. There's a giant's chair in Dulane Water and a giant's cave in Tailburn, which don't want to know how it got its name. Um, there are giant's graves in a variety of locations around Scotland. There's also a giant's leg, which is unfortunate for the giant, and giant's steps at the Falls of Tumul. And then, of course, many of Scotland's ancient standing stones have stories that are related to giants either throwing them or arranging them like dominoes and then not finishing the game. For example, the colonist stones of Ug are supposedly giants who were turned into stone by St. Kieran for not obeying the tenets of Christianity, which is really kind of trolly. I know. I like know. Tolkien trolly, yeah, not internet trolly. Now, English giants were believed to have been the descendants of the 33 daughters of the Emperor Diocletian. These daughters murdered their husbands and were set adrift in a ship which eventually reached England. There they associated with demons and their children were the giants, who, according to Geoffrey of Monmouth, were the only inhabitants of England when Brutus arrived from Troy. Well, that sure does help, you know, make the pre-existing population seem a whole lot less human and sympathetic. Just saying. Just saying. So the last giant in the British Isles was Gog Magog. Hey, that sounds way older. Like, it sounds, like, ancient and creepy. Which Geoffrey of Monmouth wrote about in 1136 in Historia Regnum Britannia. Geoffrey of Monmouth has owned this giant ship. Where he described how early Britain was inhabited by this race of giants, and the 12-foot Gog Magog was this rough and strong creature who could uproot an oak tree as if it were a twig. Now, one day, a group of giants, including Gog Magog, attacked Brutus, a descendant of the Trojans of Greece. 
That was a very nice. So Brutus took Agog Magog to his second in command, Quirinius, the founder of Cornwall. Ah, I see that. Who was a keen giant wrestler. <laughs> so the two began to wrestle, and Gog Magog used his brute strength to crush three of Quirinius's ribs. Quirinius was so enraged by the injury that he quickly picked up the giant and ran with him up a hill, finally throwing him to his death off a cliff. And thus it said, ridding Britain of the last giant. So I just want to take a moment to speak to our UK listeners. Because, yeah, we have weird myths about our founders, like George Washington chopping down a cherry tree. But no one in our, like, founding father pantheon was a keen giant wrestler. I don't know. We have people that wrestled bears and things. <laughs> well, Davy Crockett killed him a bar when he was only three. I've yeah, heard the song. Wrong. It was there. A bar and a giant are very different. A giant bear. <laughs> it doesn't say that. King of the wild frontier. But of course, these are all mythological giants. And, and one very real keen giant wrestler. So in addition to being associated with terrestrial pursuits like farming, rock throwing. Very important. Giants are also very commonly associated with warriors. Yeah, I mean, you have like Goliath. Right. Yeah, he's a staple giant, I would say. But you have to wonder if ere there were a time in history when someone said to themselves, you know what would make my soldiers better soldiers? If they were bigger. They were giants. If they were giants. And yes, my dear friends, dear listeners, at one time that did happen. So let us now go to Prussia. Of course. And at this moment in Prussia, Frederick William I is taking the throne. And he had a thing for like militarism and soldiers in general. He was actually known as the Soldier King. From the time that he took the throne in 1713 until he died in 1740, the military expanded from 38,000 to 83,000 men. Big increase. And eventually, one in nine Prussian men were members of the military. And he was so hell-bent on making the military bigger and like this emphasis on warring might that he actually did not live a very ostentatious lifestyle. He kind of was more frugal. He actually put his money where his military was. It's kind of crazy for the time. Yeah. So his son, who is also called Frederick, was presented by his father at the age of six with a little regiment of children cadets. Toy soldiers. Yes, to do drills with. But then Frederick also, or Frederick II or Frederick II, rebelled and tried to flee to Europe with his tutor. But the king brought them back. And had the tutor executed. Oh, shit. He so, was serious? Yes. And then he threw Frederick II in prison for a little while. Oh, they good. They had a fraught relationship. Yeah. Lots of good parenting examples in this episode. Yes. And then he threw a scythe at him. So the giants are coming for you? Yes. And they were. They were indeed. Because this was not just limited to soldiers of any type. No, no. Frederick William I of Prussia had a very specific palette when it came to soldiers. So he created a unit that was officially known as the Grand Grenadiers of Potsdam. Were they grand in stature? They were. Colloquially, they were referred to as the long guys or the tall blokes. And officially, the only requirement to join the regiment was that you be at least 6'2". That's really tall back then. It is. And Frederick himself was only 5'5". So this must have seemed quite impressive. <laughs> right. And the pay rates for the soldiers were dictated by their height. So the taller you were, the more you got? Mm-hmm. Nice. 
Now, Freddie oversaw the design of their uniforms, and they were blue with red breeches and white garters and a grenadier cap. And it's kind of like a miter, like bishops wear. So make them look taller. 18 inches tall as miter. Oh my gosh, they all looked at least like seven feet tall. At least, right. Well over seven feet tall. Now, in addition to their sick duds, they were given the best accommodation and, you know, very consistent, well-prepared food. But these privileges disguised the fact that most of the giants were very reluctant soldiers and that their life was dominated by the very odd whims of this monarch. Besides just dressing them up in fancy clothes? To be fair, all soldiers at this time were pretty, pretty fancy. I'm a little jealous. Now, some were volunteers, but others were Shanghai. Wonderful. Some of them were sold into the regiment, and others were literally born and bred into the regiment. Frederick would pay fathers to sell their tall sons to him. He would pay landowners for their tallest farmhands. And by royal decree, if a newborn was expected to grow to be exceedingly tall, they would be marked with a red scarf so that they might be acquired by the king. So if you were just long when you were born? Well, if you had tall parents or uh. something. I don't know. If the old witch said that you were going to be very tall, that I don't That sounds know. more likely. Teachers would also hand over or sell their very tall students. It's a nice side hustle. Now, according to um, InfoWars... <laughs> I'm sorry, what? When I saw that they had an article and I had to read it. Why? Why? Why would they have this? Because the New World Order is coming for you and they're going to do eugenic experiments and things and make us all tall freaks. Oh, of course, of course. But anyway, according to InfoWars, cautious parents aware of his eccentric cravings made improvised shelter for their children to hide them from the ever-watchful eyes of King Frederick's scouts who feverishly roamed the lands in search of specimens to satisfy his dark avocations. Well, that makes sense. Now, I don't have another source for this, so... Are you sourcing InfoWars? I'm telling people to be dubious. We talked about this. <laughs> you're going to click it. If you're reading about the Potsdam Giants and you see that InfoWars has like a 3,000 word article on it, you're going to go, oh, lucky me. So some tall men were even gifted to Frederick. Now, leaders like Peter the Great. Of Russia. Of Russia, right. yes. Would make gifts of tall men from their own military. Generally, they were already soldiers. But he gifted these men in order to show his appreciation for the design of the Amber Room. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> right. Because, you know. Is gone. Is gone. But the designer was Prussian. And so that's why he. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Because Peter the Great wanted everything European. Yes, he did. Bless his heart. And this process was repeated by other royals and leaders of state who wanted to curry favor with the burgeoning military superpower <laughs> that. Frederick was building. And build he did. He did, he did. Say, for example, you're a tall bloke and you're like, don't know about this whole military thing. I'm really more of a lover, not a fighter. I just want to pet some rabbits, George. Yes. <laughs> well, he had, a, he had a way to deal with this. What? He would just have them kidnapped. Oh, okay. On one occasion, he had set his sights on a relatively high-powered, very visible Austrian diplomat who was unusually tall but this did not work out so well but just to show you that station did not matter in his pursuit of tall soldiers it was like i have to have him he's a wild brute uh, no <laughs> i'm going home but 
There was another kidnapping plan that fared a little better. There was this tall priest somewhere in Prussia, and he was kidnapped during the middle of one of his sermons by Frederick's enforcers. I guess they needed a chaplain. (laughs) So one of the tallest giants was this Irishman named James Kirkland, who was seven feet and one inch tall. Now he accepted a job as a footman for Baron Bork, who was a Prussian ambassador to London. But this was all a ruse, you see. And Kirkland was actually sent on board a Prussian ship, which had been moored in Portsmouth, And he was immediately grabbed, bound and gagged, and then he was dispatched to the continent. (laughs) Oh my God. Now supposedly, and I must say supposedly, because the providence on this is sketchy, but you will see it quoted everywhere, Frederick once said, the most beautiful girl or woman in the world would be a matter of indifference to me, but tall soldiers, they are my weakness. This guy had issues. Oh, if he wasn't feeling well and couldn't make it out to the parade grounds that day, he would have the regiment march through his bedroom. Through his bedroom? Yes, in full military regalia. Do they keep wearing the regalia? They marched through. Marched through. Sure. But he also painted their portraits from memory. Were they nudes? I wasn't able to find any of them. That is so sad. I know. Now, Frederick was not happy with his organically grown giants. This was not enough for him. GMO. He wanted some GMO soldiers. Didn't know what that meant, but he thought it sounded great. But he would also like work with what he'd already got. This is not just pure organizing and planning. He had a rack constructed and he decided that he could use this to stretch men even taller. And he would sometimes preside over the stretching sessions himself. But some of these giants had the nerve to go and die as a result of this practice i can't believe this cosmetic torture if you will and so reluctantly he discontinued the practice because he did not want to lose any more giants or maybe they threatened mutiny and they were kind of imposing accounts vary really truly he did not care for losing his giants it offended him to the core of his being and so he never sent them into battle They were merely for the parade ground. So sometimes he would assemble two to three hundred of the men and have them preceded by, quote, tall turban moors with cymbals and trumpets and the grenadier's mascot, an enormous bear, just to cheer him up if he were, you know, feeling a little down. That would cheer me up, sure. It would cheer anyone up. Again, back to InfoWars we go. Oh, God. As only a German blue blood could devise, the king forced his rapidly shrinking collection to interbreed with equally tall women so as to build a future army of giants, which would be the envy of Europe's upper class. Getting a little red-faced there. A little red-faced. Is that real? Well, that is real. They, oh, okay. they would actually. He did procure tall women as well, and he would have them breed so that he could have their progeny as his future giant soldiers and supposedly as a result of this potsdam was littered with unusually tall men by the end of the 18th century now charles darwin once wrote that human beings unlike livestock had never been forcibly bred to select for characteristics quote except for in the well-known case of the prussian grenadiers oh damn (laughs) so yeah it's it's, it's pretty real. So at the time of his death in 1740, there were 3,200 men in the regiment. And you'll remember Frederick II, you know, 
the one who was thrown in jail and whose tutor was executed at the hands of his father. Yeah, yeah. He did not care for the Grenadiers. He did not see them with the same loving gaze that his father had. So not the same fetish is what you're saying. Yeah, basically he just did not have the tall soldier fetish. He dismissed them as silly window dressing and reassigned the men to combat units. There was a like little vestige of the original regiment, but it was put into combat as well. And it remained until 1806 when they were defeated and surrendered and were thus disbanded after they were defeated in the Battle of Gina. I know you may be all fun fact out after this. Never. After this little adventure we've been on. But fun fact, there's a reenactment group. Do they have height restrictions? Of course. Yes. It's Germany. Come on. And so they do reenact their specific parade movements and they wear authentic replica costumes if that's a not an oxymoron and they speak german and are very tall and wear the miters and it's equal parts terrifying and delightful amazing (laughs) and good news i have good news what's that there are videos online i thought you were gonna say you signed up (laughs) they would want nothing of me your mitre is 25 inches tall. And here are your platform heels. Enjoy. But yes, there are videos online. We'll post a link. Also, one of the skeletons of an original grenadier was on display at the Anatomy Museum in Vienna. Interesting. Which is in the, the asylum, which is in the old asylum we talked about on another episode. Right. The one that was built with like astrology and yeah. astronomy and stuff. So there you have it. True fact. There was once a regiment of giant warriors. So let's talk a little more about giants. I mean, real giants like the Grenadiers. So one giant who gained great fame in his time was Charles Byrne, the Irish giant. He was born in 1761 in the small village of Littlebridge, Ireland. He grew to be seven (laughs) feet tall. Little bridge. (laughs) He grew to be seven feet, seven inches tall. And he could no longer use the little bridge. So there was a legend among the locals that his parents, quote, had a love affair when they were high up in a haystack. And from the lofty situation, the common people imagined it had an effect on the woman's conception and gave occasion to this great offspring. What would they say about high rise apartments? Everyone's a giant. Or why are they not? Frederick would be so excited. So when he was 19, he decided to leave his home of Little Bridge and head off to the big city, London, to gain his fame and fortune. And they were like, you look like an industrious young man. You might be intelligent. Why don't you apply a trade that suits you? We won't exploit you at all. No, I mean, he was like displaying himself as a giant. like Right. Like I said, valued for his intellect. <laughs> you don't know what kind of intellect he had. Smart enough to figure out he could exhibit himself. Exactly. He's pretty smart. So, you know, he traveled. He wasn't born yesterday (laughs) in a hayloft. (laughs) So he exhibited himself throughout Scotland, northern England, making his way to London. It was said that in Edinburgh, the night watchmen were amazed because he could light his pipe from one of the street lamps. Shut up. That is pretty cool. That's That's a nice parlor trick. Charles. Now, on May 6th of 1782, a newspaper was writing about him saying, However striking curiosity may be, there is generally some difficulty in engaging the attention of the public. 
But even this was not the case with the modern living Colossus, our wonderful Irish giant. But suffering from medical issues and um, a love of gin. It's gotta, you've got to have a lot of gin, I bet. He died a few years later in 1783. But there was this surgeon, John Hunter, who had his eye on the Irish giant and wanted him for dissection. Poor guy dies when he's 22 years old. And this does not shock me because we've done a whole episode on the resurrectionist and, you know, the anatomy riots and all such things as this. I have no trouble believing that there were literally medical men barking at his very large heels trying to get a a piece of him. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Hopefully all of him. I knew this. So he made this unusual final request. Charles directed his pals to weigh him down in a kind of lead coffin and bury him at sea. So he very clearly, very, very clearly, truly, really does not want to be a specimen. No, who would be? I don't know. People donate their bodies to science. Whatever. So the Edinburgh Evening Courant reported, Yesterday morning, June 6th, the body of Byron, the famous Irish giant who died a few days ago, was carried to Margate in order to be thrown into the sea. Agreeable to his own request, he having been apprehensive that the surgeons would anatomize him. When you verb that word like that. <laughs> I love it. But it is it does sound scary. So Hunter really was hunting him. No. An unscrupulous undertaker. Unscrupulous undertaker. Right? There's a lot of alliteration. Fantastic. It's positively J.K. Rowling, a kind of alliteration. Now he opened the coffin and switched the dead body for dead weight. But the funeral went on because no one knew. So Hunter took the body, anatomized him, and boiled it in acid to remove the flesh and exhibited the skeleton in his museum in London. Fuck that guy. That's fucking terrible. That's awful. It is awful because he didn't want it. So the bones. No, he very expressly did not. Like he was very clear about it. It's not like, oh, well, he never said, which is often the excuse. There was never an explicit. Come on. So the bones were studied in 1909 by the renowned American neurosurgeon Harvey Cushing, who removed the top of the skull and pronounced that Mr. Byrne had a pituitary tumor. Pituitary gland is what makes you grow. Pituitary gland does a lot of things. It is kind of your chief hormone maker. But he had a tumor there. Yes. Did the tumor kill him or was it the gin? It was the gin. Okay. Because these kind of pituitary tumors are usually benign. Okay. But they do cause what's called gigantism. Like really that's what it's called. That's the medical term. Cool. So it's typically applied to those whose height is not just in the upper 1% of the population, but two standard deviations above the mean. So you don't just have to be like the tallest guy in your class. You've got to be very tall. Well over 6'6". Six, six. Oh, yeah, you're tall. You're, you're exceedingly okay. tall. So gigantism is very rare, with the low 100s of reported cases to date. There are several genetic causes that have been identified, such as with the Irish giant, because his DNA was tested when researchers became suspicious that he had a genetic cause due to etchings of him next to two other related Irish giants. There can't be more than... It was the Irish giant. He had a definite article. That he gave himself. Oh, fine. I guess I would <laughs> give my... paper stuff. I would give myself a definite article if I were just passing them out. So most people with gigantism have these pituitary tumors that produce too much growth hormone. And so this happens whenever you're younger, before mm-hmm. your growth plates close... You're a giant. 
you're tall and slender. And, and just sort of the classic, like, beanpole giant. Yeah, you're like Jolly Green Giant. Okay. So if this continues, or if you get this excess growth hormone after your growth plates close, you get what's called acromegaly, which is rare, but much more common than gigantism. So acromegaly is separate and apart from gigantism, or is it a compounding? It's usually separate. Okay. But gigantism can become acromegaly, and usually does. If you continue to grow, if you continue to have excess growth hormone after your growth plates are closed. Right. And so you get things like the thickening of your skin, joint overgrowth, increased muscle and soft tissue mass, the classic hat size changing from back in the day. So this is where instead of being the jolly green giant, you become much more of like an ogre-like appearance. That's not nice. But it it truly is like a good way to think about it. But okay, so let me be a little more PC and be like more Andre the giant giant. Andre the giant was a giant. Right. But did he have acromegaly? Yes. Okay. So when I think of him, I think of those his knuckles. Yeah, think of his knuckles. Think of how big his jaw was. And I also think about Andy Kaufman. He was not a giant. No. At least not in Only stature. In... Wait, it depends on how you mean stature. It's true. It's true. <laughs> so, and you know, Andre the Giant died of medical issues. Mm-hmm. And you can have a lot of medical issues related to this kind of acromegaly. Because is it just growth hormone or is it kind of like all your hormones? Can, every, can that kind of... That'd be a different problem. Okay. But with it, you get heart problems, things like that. So investigators did look at the Irish giant's DNA, and they calculated that the giant and four contemporary Irish families had a common ancestor who lived about 1,500 years ago. And there are probably 200 to 300 people living today who inherited this mutation that causes gigantism. One of these is alive today. His name is Brendan Holland, and he's a 58-year-old Irishman. And he started to grow excessively when he was 13. Mm-hmm. He said, I kept growing and growing. And he eventually reached a height of six feet, nine inches. As he grew, he said he became less coordinated, developed frequent violent headaches, and had sporadic episodes when he could not see. He had no idea what was wrong. And he left school when he was 19, thinking that the studying was giving me headaches. So he's witty, too. Yes. He is Irish. Finally, when Mr. Holland was 20 and living in London, he saw an endocrinologist who found the pituitary tumor that was causing all these problems and destroyed it with radiotherapy, and his growth hormone levels dropped to normal. So, he so did not, the headaches stop too? All yeah, of it stopped? it was Great. all caused by that. And so he's not going to have all those acromegaly problems. So there is a reason to investigate this and kind of oh, yeah. see about it. So the pituitary tumor was diagnosed post-mortem, clearly, since he was bones, by Cushing. Right. centuries later. Centuries? Yeah. Really? Yeah, he could see the impression in the skull. And he could also look at the other problems, too, because he was this brilliant neurosurgeon. He basically invented modern neurosurgery and also like won a Pulitzer for writing a biography on Osler. And oh, cool. He's just a pure genius. There's an endocrinological disease named after him, Cushing's disease. That's the moon face one. Yeah, and the buffalo hump. God, We're, such so terrible. Medicine is so PC. It's not. It's not at all. It's not. It's not. It's better than it was. So what happened to the bones other other than that? Well, I mean, you had the, the DNA testing right. recently, so you know it's still around. Right. Oh, so he did not, like, realize the error of his ways and send the bones back to bonnie old Ireland or even bury them at sea. Nope, nope, nope. They're still hanging out somewhere. Right. There have been recent calls for him to be buried at sea, but they're just 
pretty much dismissed because he is still on display. That is so terrible. At the Hunterian Collection at London's Royal College of Surgeons, which boasts an unrivaled collection of human and non-human anatomical and pathological specimens. The interesting thing about this is that he is not only on display, he is prominently displayed under an illuminated bust of Dr. Hunter. Fuck that guy. I'm sorry. I'm back to it again. Oh, my God. Fuck that guy. God. Okay, so we're going to start a letter writing campaign because we're Southerners. There has been. There's been a... But have Southerners done it? We get shit done. All right, so that is one case of a giant skeleton. Two. We've got the grenadier. Oh, you're right. So that's two. But they're not discovered like out in the wild, like our original legend. Yeah, not like the fake photos, no. We need to discover a giant skeleton out in the wild. We do. We do. We have to. Let's go to Cardiff, New York. Cardiff, England? Cardiff, New Cardiff is not in England. Cardiff Where's is in Cardiff? Wales. Okay, fine. <laughs> I'm bad at geography. I know. <laughs> I love you anyway. I made that decision long ago. <laughs> but no, Cardiff, New York. So on October 16th of 1869, a 10-foot-tall petrified man, so not quite a skeleton, but a 10-foot-tall, petrified man oh my gosh. was discovered in Cardiff, New York. Now, this giant was a sight to behold. He was nude and lying on his back with his right arm grasping at his stomach, and his legs were crossed. And he had this kind of half-smile on his face, and he had an Adam's apple. He even had pores on his skin, and he had ribs. Were his legs crossed to cover his genitals? No, you could see him. Oh, he was full Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. Yes, except not blue, sadly. That's so bad. It weighed over 3,000 pounds, this giant. Now, he was discovered near a barn belonging to William Stubb Newell by two men who had been hired by Mr. Newell to dig a well on his property. And their names were Gideon Emmons and Henry Nichols. And they hit stone not quite three feet down. And they soon recognized the shape of a foot. And they continued digging until they unearthed A giant? A giant. Oh, my God. So Newell, who was this local farmer, was not phased by the discovery. He was very unmoved by it. And he stated that he planned to rebury the thing and forget all about it. But eventually his neighbors convinced him that this find might be of some historical value. A new wonder, read the headline in the Syracuse Daily Standard. A singular discovery, raved another paper. According to the Syracuse Journal, men left their work. Women caught up their babies and children in numbers and hurried to the scene of interest in this little community. Catch up your babies. Let's go. (laughs) So Newell did find that this thing had value after all. He eventually set up this big white tent over it and charged people 25 cents admission to come have a gander at his giant. Now this is an American tale. Yes, it is. But soon he would double the price of admission because the demand was so great. Capitalism. (laughs) And in the first week of exhibition, 2,500 people tracked themselves up to Cardiff to go see the giant. So he was making good money. Bank. Good money. Now, there were theories about what this might be that we were all beholding here. So Cardiff was well known for fossil deposits. Right. Lots of skeleton, uh, mammoths. Sure. <laughs> hey, remember the. That is the area, Hyde Park, New York. Okay, okay, okay. Is where the original photo of the giant, see? Of, of the giant see? slash mammoth mastodon. And so it was just conjectured that this was an ancient man 
who was also a giant that had been petrified in a nearby swamp. Oh, like a bog person. Yes. And some early examinations, you know, said, sure, that's exactly what it is. You're right. And most commonly, it was supposed that this man had been an ancient predecessor of the Onondaga people. But there was a competing theory that was put forward by a Syracuse-based science lecturer, and he believed that the giant was a statue that was carved by French Jesuits centuries earlier in order to, quote, impress the natives. Halfway there, buddy. (laughs) The New York State geologist James Hall and Rochester University professor Henry Ward were among the many to throw their weight behind this theory, with Hall christening it the most remarkable object yet brought into light in our country. So... There's no way it was actually carved by... I mean, I guess it could be. By Jesuits? Yeah. Jesuits. Yeah. It could be. Sure. Sure. But was it? No. Of course not. No. So... Did Barnum do it? No. No. Not yet. Good. Wait for it. So in 1867, George Hall, who we've not heard of yet, had an idea. Now, Hall was an, an atheist all the way back in 1867 when being such a thing was barbarous. And he was also a deeply, deeply dogmatic skeptic. And he was described as lacking a formal education, but greatly admiring science. And he just endured something that he found terribly unbelievable. He'd come across it in Iowa, where he'd run into a pastor who believed every word in the Bible was literally true. So fundamentalist preacher. Yes. And this troubled George Hall. And they'd been locked in this theological debate, which centered on the passage in Genesis And there were giants on the earth in those days. Now, the revivalist minister, of course, said, obviously, it meant that there were giants on the earth in those days. Like, how hard is it, dude? Nephilim. And George wondered, he pondered to himself, if this preacher will believe that, what else will he believe? And then he decided to see exactly what he could make people fall for. He had the novel idea to make his own giant. He would build it from stone, and he had high hopes of passing it off as a, quote, petrified man. Now, he spent the next two years and $3,000 of his own money working on his giant. Oh, he was committed. He was. Now, this is like, this is trolling before the internet, people. It was hard. It's kind of what I was thinking. He's like, I just want to disagree with you. (laughs) This much. And I really don't have any formal education, but I read this on Wikipedia, so... Must be true. So he bought a five-ton block of gypsum in Iowa and claimed that he planned to use it to sculpt a likeness of Abraham Lincoln. He is a patriot. So then he shipped the slab to Chicago to a marble dealer who agreed to help him in his scheme in exchange for a piece of the profits. And so with Hull posing as the model, the pair of them spent the summer of 1868 fashioning the gypsum into this artificial anthropological wonder. Now, they doused the finished product in sulfuric acid to give it an aged look, and Hall even drove pins into its skin to give it the appearance of pores. Wow, he really thought this out. Mm Mm-hmm. So how do we get from Chicago to Cardiff, you may be asking? And it buried in someone's farm. Well, Stub Newell... Yes. Our hapless farmer who was like, I'm just going to bury it again. I don't think there's eh, anything to it. Donate to science. And he was just going to bury it. It was, it was worthless. Well, he was in on the whole thing. Of course. Of course. He was a distant relative of Hull's. And so Hull made arrangements to have the giant shipped to him. This 3,000 pound, 10 foot long giant. 
And so it made its journey in an iron-sealed box, and then it was buried by some hired men in November of 1868. The men who were hired to inter the giant were careful to wedge it beneath roots to make sure that it appeared that it had been there for ages. So almost a year later, Hull gets in touch with Newell, and he's like, dig him up. It's time. So he let it like, sit there for a year, mm-hmm. make it look old, even older. Right, and let the ground settle and everything else. Roots grow over it a little bit. Yeah. And so Newell hired some unsuspecting men to dig a well near his barn. And upon discovering the massive stone man, one of them supposedly declared, I declare, some old Indian is buried here. But that's exactly what he said. Mm-hmm. After Newell began charging the public to view the giant, which had, of course, been a part of the plan all along, Hull decided it was time to finally go to Cardiff. And when he got there, the two discussed next steps. And they decided to go ahead and accept this offer they'd gotten for $30,000 for three-quarter ownership of the giant. Sounds like a good deal. Yeah. And so a man named Howell became the owner of the giant. Now, many in town and many around the country really wanted to believe that this was an ancient petrified man. I mean, this is the height of fundamentalism. The preacher was not the only one who, you know, believed that every word in the Bible was literally true. And so this was a huge boon to faith, as we saw on YouTube. <laughs> right. And But at this time, all of these discoveries were being made. And you know, we've talked about it in the Jersey Devil episode. You know, you were finding these weird monsters and creatures all over the world. Could this be real? Why not? We're finding dinosaurs. Why not? And so those people stuck to their ideas about the giant but there were some who could not help but begin to grow a bit suspicious. Some people remembered the giant-sized crate that had been shipped to Cardiff a year earlier. And they also remembered that Hall had been the man doing the shipping. And then they noticed a large transfer of money from Newell to Hall after the sale of the giant. Curious, eh? Right. More questions were raised when the giant hit the road with its new owners, who took him to Syracuse and Albany. And while on tour... A paying customer and a mining engineer made the observation that gypsum would have deteriorated quickly in the soggy soil around the Newell farm. Uh-oh. I wonder how they transported it. Train car, I guess. It's gotta be. It's gotta be. But an even more crucial blow came courtesy of a famed Yale paleontologist, Othniel Charles Marsh. He's a famed paleontologist. Yes, and he needed only a passing glance to pronounce the giant... A very recent origin and a most decided humbug. Humbug. Humbug, you say? How lovely. Humbug. Cried P.T. Barnum from across the room. Did you call my name? No, we said it was a humbug. <laughs> call my name. We said it was, a, it was a humbug. Yes, my name. That's... Oh, it was a humbug. Okay. So P.T. did go see the giant and he first attempted to purchase it after seeing it in Syracuse. He offered $50,000 for a share of the giant. And he hoped to move this fantastical creature to New York City, where it belonged. But he was turned down. But never one to let the truth stand in the way of a good story, or educating the public about a good story. Of course. P.T. commissioned a sculptor to create a giant for him, and displayed it as if it were the real Cardiff giant. Oh, P.T. Barnum. I wonder if there's a song about this in the new movie. <laughs> oh, Fingers crossed. What is it? Ask ads for Barnum's exhibition. Is it a statue? Is it a petrifaction? Is it a stupendous fraud? Is it the remains of a former race? And 
his display of this forgery of a of a forgery <laughs> drew larger crowds than the original. Now, the sculptor who had created Barnum's Giant made a few extra just in case. So he was taking a page out of Barnum's book. Yes, and by the end of the year, there were about six real Cardiff giants on display throughout the country. I mean, there wasn't the internet to tell you otherwise. (laughs) The Philadelphia Inquirer quipped, It is rather rich that we should be victimized by such a fraud upon a fraud. And then the owners of the real Cardiff giant, the original shall we say, instead of real, decided they needed to sue P.T. Barnum. You're not going to (laughs) win. Now, the judge in the case who wins, life, said, bring your giant here, and if he swears to his own genuineness and his his bona fide petrifaction, you shall have the injunction that you ask. Nice. That's like Judge Byrne. (laughs) That's an (laughs) 1860s Judge Byrne. Now, by 1870, the giant was no longer a mystery, and it had become an object of ridicule. Though some did persist in their arguments that it was a genuine artifact. And they did so despite George Hall bragging all around town that he had engineered this genius hoax. The truth doesn't stop people, don't worry. And they did so despite the printed confession of the Chicago sculptor who helped create the thing. Fake news. And they did so until about 1880 when the giant was finally put into storage in a barn in Massachusetts. And I think that the only reason the arguments about it stopped is because it went out of public view. It was eventually passed between various owners and toured the carnival circuit before being sold to the Farmer's Museum in Cooperstown, New York. Is it there now? Yes. Let's go. Let's go. I agree. So all told, Hull made about $20,000 on his giant hoax. And that would be enough for most people. But most people are not king of the grudge match. Skeptic in chief, George Hall. So what did he do next? What did he come up with? He was going to create another giant. He's not very creative. And it would have a tail. Ooh. All right. All right. A tail. That's fancy. That's a twist. It was going to be about seven feet tall, and it was constructed. And this one was buried in Colorado. The solid Muldoon, as it would come to be known, was made of dust, plaster, clay, bone, blood, and meat. It doesn't sound very petrified. No, it was supposed to, I guess, look more recent and grosser. I don't know. Now, the petrified man craze had taken on steam, and by this time, it was in full force. And petrified men were popping up all over. Hotels and tricksters began cooking up their own giants as marketing stunts, none holding up under basic scrutiny, but still managing to collect a dollar a person in admission to see these forgeries. A real petrified man was found in a cave in South Dakota, but people were so over it by the time this genuine discovery was yeah, made. Yeah, saw the giants. Okay, good job. That he was only sold for $2,000. The real one. The real oh petrified man. Remember, PT offered $50,000 for the Cardiff giant. The giant bur- bubble had burst. Aw. So... You have to ask, was the giant just a product of its time, the Cardiff giant, and these forgeries that followed? Mark Rose, who is a historian, referred to the end of the 19th century as the golden age of hoaxes. And that's kind of true. Oh, yeah, definitely. According to Kat Escher of the Smithsonian, people in the last half of the 1800s liked messing with each other's heads. It was a weird transitional time to be alive, as the Industrial Revolution changed the world regularly. And there was a great taste for novelty inspired by newly available products and experiences. So you see, maybe this isn't the first time we've been overtaken by fake news. (laughs) Anytime there are great leaps in technology, 
people begin to question everything, it seems. And I find that so fascinating. No, it is interesting. When there are those giant leaps, you say, what could be real? What's next? Scholar Michael Petit described the reaction to seeing the giant this way. Many spectators understood the giant within the framework of wonder, in which extraordinary objects that seemed to transcend the laws of nature were valued and deemed authentic for precisely that reason. Across the social spectrum, from farmers who paid 50 cents to view the statue where it lay, to the transcendentalist philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson, who viewed the giant at an exhibition in Boston, expressions of wonder were heard. So he's saying, like, or what I take from that is that feeling of wonder was real. Yeah. So it didn't matter if the giant was real. Yeah, I mean, everyone that was going to, you know, Barnum's Museum, they knew that some of this stuff was Well, I mean, fake. it says in the ad copy, is it a stupendous fraud? Yeah, he's playing on that idea. Truthiness was not yet a word, Jacob. Uh, but it existed. So little did Hall know, but he was actually following some pretty great predecessors on the discovery of these giants. So since we're in New England... Let's be puritanical and beat people? No. Okay. I don't know. What else do you do in New England? Let's be cold. Let's go to the Boston Museum of Art. Oh, oh, actually, that is a good time. Yes, it is fun. We've been there. So there, there is this Corinthian vase from about 560 to 540 BCE. From, from Corinth? Yes. Thanks. <laughs> so on it is depicted this old tale, the Monster of Troy, that was recorded by Homer in the 8th century. So in this tale, a fearsome monster suddenly appears on the coast of Troy after a flood. It preyed upon the farmers. What'd it do? Ate them. Oh, heavens. And the only way to appease it was to? Sacrifice a maiden. Of course, the king's daughter. Usually, yeah. But don't worry. Hero. Heracles. Oh, cool. Like the hero. Like the Heracles. Hercules. Yes, that one comes to save the day and defeat the beast. Hercules, Hercules. So on the vase, you can see the Heracles. Vase. It's the vase. Yeah, right. Heracles is firing arrows at the monster, and the maiden, Hessian, is throwing rocks. Because she's a giant. No. Oh. But what's odd about this vase is how the monster is depicted. It's ugly. It appears like this large animal skull eroding out of an outcropping. It looks like they took really, either really weird artistic license or like somebody finished it for him while he was sleeping and he was like, whatever, just sell the damn thing. Well, so before kind of modern paleoanthropology, it was thought that that's all it was. Like, it was just, well, that guy wasn't too good at <laughs> drawing monsters. Wow, he had an off day, huh? Because the rest of the vase looks like, you know, other Grecian urns and vases and vases. Exactly. So was it just a bad depiction? Or was it a depiction of how the ancients found evidence and remains of these once great beasts that roamed ancient Greece in the times of gods and heroes and monsters? I, I like the second one. It's I hope fun. it's the second one. For sure. So, I really hope you wouldn't build me up to it being the first one. It's just a bad drug. That's it. <laughs> That's End of the episode. Cool story, bro. So prehistoric bones in this like, a Mediterranean area come from these huge, strange animals of the Miocene and Pliocene epoch, about 23 to 2 million years ago. So 15 million years ago, there was a land bridge in the area. Mm -hmm. So you had this new corridor, which eventually kind of created Eurasia. Thanks. Handy. We'll need that later, said the English. Yeah, Yeah, right. 
So there were many migrating animals, giant giraffes, prehistoric elephants, rhinoceroses. So in all of our travels, in all of our, we have to go to the Natural History Museum moments we've had. Yes, we have to. Everywhere we go. I've never seen a giant giraffe. You have seen the relatives of giraffes. Okay. You have. Like, because they look kind of like horses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have to look at how their feet are made and how their skulls are made. So in like one of those big walls where they have all the horses. Right. They're like the ones that they're like, these are not horses. By the way. And from prior to this time, you can see areas of Greece covered in fossil seashells, even enough to where the Greeks figured there must have been a sea there in the past. Mm. And so remains they found also could have been the remains of like Eocene whales prior to the sea receding. Ooh, what did that look like? Oh, they're very interesting looking. You could definitely see it being the head of a hydra. Ah. So several ancient writers spoke of the giant foot and hoof prints in the bedrock in Sicily. These were the impressions of Heracles and the giant cattle of the giant Garion, which is the tenth labor of Heracles. So he had to travel to the end of the world and steal. <laughs> Sicily, clearly. Uh, no, it's, no, it's Gibraltar. Okay, fine. <laughs> and steal the giant cattle of Garion and bring them back to Greece. Mm. So he had to travel with them. And that's why there's like a trail of hoof prints. Yes. I, yes. I, I'm fine, I of buy course. it. Of course. And Garion was not only a giant, his father sprung from the body of the Gorgon Medusa. I know her. Sea Monsters Feminine episode. Yes. And his mother was the daughter of Titans. He had three heads and three sets of legs. It and must it, have been hell to yeah, get around. Yeah, his cattle were guarded by Orthus, Cerebrus's brother. Does he have like six heads? Two. Whoa, no wonder we haven't heard of him. Right? Aww. So, Garion lived on an island called Erythia, which was near the boundary of Europe and Libya. When he arrived, he split a mountain and created the Pillars of Hercules. Okay. Which is at the Strait of Gibraltar. So, many, many, many trials to get the cattle back to Greece. So, you see these hoof-shaped fossils on his trek back. Mm-hmm. Are those seashells? They are. I'm smart. <laughs> you are. They're giant shellfish impressions embedded in the late Triassic limestone. And now many Greek farmers would also find ancient horns of the giant cattle buried within the dirt. Like tusk? Like tusks. Like from the mammoths and mastodons and things? Exactly. <laughs> oh. I love the Greeks because they are like so pseudoscientific. It warms my heart because they're kind of like... Looking at nature and being like, no, this is still legit. Like, this backs up everything we've been saying. No, exactly. Monsters are different than giants. True. Where are our giants? So now we all know that the Titans were giants. In stature? Everything. (laughs) Now you mentioned Prometheus earlier. Mm -hmm. So a 5th century BCE Greek playwright, Ascalius wrote Prometheus Bound. So we all know Prometheus stole fire to give to humans, right. et cetera, right? He's in the movie with Michael Fassbender? No. Okay. No xenomorphs. What? The white guys, like the really white guys. Like yeah. The clear guys. But what happened to him? Galter. Vulture. What? what? A vulture who's chained to a rock, and every day a vulture would eat his liver out because he had been very bad. Yes. 
and he was immortal, so he would survive it. That is one version of the tale. Well, it's also like my favorite curse to put on people. I hope a vulture eats your liver. So in the play, he imagines that great landslides and torrential rains will bury the giant at the bottom of a gorge, where his body will be, quote, trapped in stone for eons. Then he must travel through vast tracts of time before he finally reemerges into sunlight as a carcass for eagles to ravage. So he's putting a little more a little more distance on the on the fate. Right, well it wasn't just monsters that were being found in the form of skulls of ancient giraffes or whales. We had these great mythological people or gods or titans or heroes being found as well. But there really were like giant giraffes, and I don't expect somebody in Greece to know what a giant giraffe looks like. I really don't. Ex- but humans, I expect them to be more familiar with the anatomy, and it sure. seems like more of a leap to be like clearly a human. Well, so hero cults were very popular in ancient Greek religion, especially between 700 and 500 BCE, which just also happens to be whenever Homer and Hesiod were both alive and writing. That's some serious influence. When people start cults because of your writing, you've made it. Well, so these heroes were not just great men of heroic stature, but they were also of great stature. Stature, stature. Tall stature. Because everyone knew in ancient times, just like you see in the Quran, that in the time of heroes and monsters, everything was much larger. Clearly. On observing some of these heroes' bones, Pliny said, It's obvious that the whole human race is becoming shorter day by day. Pliny... God, he was so hit and miss. He was a lot of mess. He is just like the proverbial shit slinger. Just see what sticks, man. Just throw something every day. So Herodotus wrote his histories in 430 BCE. Right. I'm familiar. He wrote the history of the Peloponnesian War. That's one of his hits. It is. He so to play it at all the yeah. shows. So he tells of the Spartans seeking the help of the Oracle of Delphi to help defeat the Arcadian Tegea. The oracle told them that they must find the bones of the hero, Orestus. So he was the son of the king Agamemnon and was the brother to Electra. Oh no, I feel a complex coming on. Right? Which the Electra complex is kind of the... The Lady Oedipus complex? Yes, Carl Jung, Jung coined the phrase. But whenever they went searching, they could not find the bones. So Herodotus says... When they were unable to discover Orestus's tomb, they sent once more to the god to ask where he was buried. The Pythia responded in hexameter to the messengers. There is a place in Tegea in the smooth plains of Arcadia, where two winds blow under strong compulsion. Blow lies upon blow, woe upon woe. Then the life-giving earth covers the son of Agamemnon. Bring him back, and he shall be lord of Tegea. So a riddle. They give them a riddle. Yes. It was Lycus, one of these men who found the tomb in Tegea by a combination of luck and skill. At that time, there was free access. So he went into a blacksmith's shop and watched iron being forged, standing there in amazement at what he saw done. The smith perceived that he was amazed, so he stopped what he was doing and said, My Lyconian guest, if you had seen what I saw, then you would really be amazed. Since you marvel so at ironworking, I wanted to dig a well in the courtyard here, and in my digging I hit upon a coffin twelve feet long. I could not believe that there had ever been men taller than now, so I opened it and saw that the corpse was just as long as the coffin. 
I measured it and then reburied it. So the smith told what he had seen, and Lycus thought about what was said and reckoned that this was Arrestus, according to the oracle. And How the, did he figure? Oh, in the smith's two bellows, he found the winds. Hammer and anvil were blown upon blow. Blow upon blow. And the forging of iron was woe upon woe. Why? He figured that iron was discovered as an evil for the human race. Seriously, is our technology metaphor, our shifting technologies, like causing anxiety and people looking for something larger than themselves? Is it going to be that evident? Now keep going. Great. <laughs> I told you he was following a great line of predecessors. <laughs> so once they obtained the bones... This led to Sparta's military dominance in the Peloponnese, setting up the stage for... The Peloponnesian War? Of course. Yay! So the Athenians weren't going to let the Spartans have all the bone fun. Okay. <laughs> so they went Did to... Did they the... just go think about bones? No, they so went they to just... the Delphic Oracle. Uh, she... Okay, equal opportunity Oracle, I get it. Whoever pays. Got it. Advised them to find the bones of one of their great heroes, Theseus. And they're like, cool deal. We're going to go meditate on it. No, they were like, we know where he was killed. He was pushed off a cliff in Skiros. But Skiros was like, we didn't do that. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, so you cannot search the island. Jurisdictional issues. Yeah. So in 476 BC, the Athenian general Cimon captured the island and made it his personal mission to find the hero's remains. So because they would not let them look for the bones, they just took it. Yeah. Cool. So he saw an eagle tearing at a mound and saw it as a sign. His men dug to reveal giant bones along with a bronze-painted spear and sword. They returned to Athens with a hero's welcome, and Theseus was interred in the heart of the city. Okay, so they're finding bones, which I don't know how they're mistaking not human bones for human bones, because it seems like they would have a basic working knowledge of human anatomy. They'd seen bones, and they're big. But my... I think my biggest question is what's with like the coffin and the spear and the flare? Well, you kind of said a few questions. So about them not recognizing them as like fossilized bones or as bones from other animals. Humans have a tendency to anthropomorphize everything. Okay, fair. So ancients were predisposed to translate these anatomical clues like mammalian bones as humans. Well, they do have like the long bones and the legs and, you know, there are similarities. There are similarities between a any mammal and a human that are more pronounced than like, I don't know, a T-Rex. No, exactly. Because we all those common ancestors. And so it's very plausible to see how you can kind of piece that together, especially when you just had a few bones. Right. One, these were not complete yeah. skeletons laying out. They were not in dioramas. <laughs> not when they found them. Yeah. So even today, one study looking at FBI files showed that 15% of human bones, originally thought to be those of murder victims, were actually animal bones. Can I tell my story? What story? From last weekend. Sure. So we were out walking around St. Francisville, which is home of the Myrtles, which was creepy. We'll talk about it another time. But the town itself is, to me, the greater treasure of the two. I loved the little town. And we went up to like the old courthouse to go look at a historical marker as we are wont to do. It happens. And then I started wandering away as I am wont to do. And I found a church as I am wont to do. And this was not just any church. It was the oldest Episcopal church in Louisiana. 
and it's in the middle of these giant oak trees with like Spanish moss and the tombstones are all like gnarly, like bad teeth gnarly. And there's like bent wrought iron and the gate was open just a little bit and it wasn't quite dark yet. I mean, it's open. It was technically open. It did not break any laws. <laughs> so we went in to go walk around the graveyard as I am want to do. And we were walking around and I was like, I don't know why people think graveyards are so creepy. I was like, I think this is a nice place. Everybody that was put here, you know, had to be put here on purpose. And like these people were cared for. And it's a nice thing. And around that time, I saw a giant marker with a bunch of arrows drawn in chalk on it. And that, that freaked me out a little bit. Freaked me out. A little bit. You were like, bit. is that what I think it is? I was like, is that part of the, the stone itself or is someone drawn on it? I need you to go look. And I made him go look. And he did. He came back and he's like, it's chalk. And I was already a little freaked out. And then we walked on a little bit and I stepped on something and I thought to myself, don't look. <laughs> and Jacob turned around and saw me with a look on my face like, don't look. And I looked down and it was a bone in a graveyard. And then I took like another two steps and I stepped on the other one. So there were two of them. And at this point I was like, okay. I just, and he's like, they're not human bones. I was like, I'm more freaked out that they're animal bones behind the gravestone with all the little chalk arrows on it. It was a little creepy. But anyway, I did not mistake them for human bones. <laughs> Sorry for taking you a rambling. Fine. But the ancients would sometimes find bones just laying about. Like in graveyards? No, in their fields or on the shore after an earthquake. Oh, after a flood. uh, I'm seeing, I'm seeing where this is going. Mm -hmm. When shit literally gets stirred up. Yeah, yeah. And remember Prometheus? Yeah, he had to lay in the sand until his corpse could be exposed for the eagles to eat. Exactly. Yeah, and so that's like when his body reemerged. It was some great act of nature. Right, like that. right. Act of gods. Mm, oh, oh. Uh-huh. And so whenever these bones were found in the past, before the cult of heroes, before the Oracle of Delphi was just stirring up shit, they were thought to be great heroes of the past still, and they were given proper burials. So this is a different cultural phase in history. Yes, so, earlier on. Okay. Still Greeks, still heroes. People kind of forget about it, and somehow the Oracle Adelphi divines, never mind, not somehow, she divines, that these heroes are buried all around since people have to find them. Years later. Yes. Through her mystical powers. And drugs. And fumes. That's another story. Okay, so I may have made a connection here. The first gen, OG, hero finders that gave them burials, did they maybe like put them in giant coffins? Right, give them proper burials and spears. And this is what the questing Spartans and Athenians were finding, which gave them even more credence. Because they were like, if this was just an animal bone, why would it be in a coffin? Exactly. Because there's nothing new under the sun. (laughs) Right, so this goes back to kind of what they were seeing in Cardiff. You know, that was an age of wonder. and People were looking for things to be you know, excited about and all these new discoveries. And, you know, these big bones in ancient Greece were the remains of this glorious past described in myths and epics. They brought prestige to their possessors. And public display of them was an important aspect of the bones' power. And you also had the religious oracles authenticating the relics found by farmers or fishermen. 
And you also had these political authorities trying to exploit them. Ah, oh, shocking. So you see in other places, like Thebes had many shrines, including to Oedipus. Mm-hmm. Was, it a, was it a complex shrine? It was. There were many phallic symbols. <laughs> Just kidding. Everyone to Hector, to Linus, the mythical musician. Oh, I know him from Snoopy. No, yes, no, exactly. he's not the musician in Snoopy. That's Schroeder. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's wrong. And Linus's bones were actually stolen at one time by Philip II when Thebes fell to Macedonia. That was not nice, Phil. Well, that's Alexander the Great's dad. Oh. Um, but he, um, he did return them when they had a negative prophetic dream. And it all worked out. I mean, like... They did go to conquer much of the world, known world. <laughs> so you do see this in other parts of the world in Jewish antiquities. There's writing from the first century A.D., that the early Israelites had wiped out a race of giants who had bodies so large and countenances entirely different from humans that they were amazing to the sight and terrible to the hearing. These bones are still shown to this very day, unlike any credible relations to other men. So that was a similar thing. That was them finding fossilized bones of other species and saying giants. Or it was really giants, one of the two. Cool. Or that description is so broad. Just like they were totally not human, which makes it technically right. (laughs) Kind of. They were different kinds of giants. So in Egypt, in Egyptian mythology, you have the god Set, who was trapped by Osiris in a large coffin and then dismembered. And his body was scattered across the land. Now, the goddess Isis gathered up the bones and placed them in shrines all around Egypt. Even the Greeks at one point claimed to have the body of Osiris. Really? Yes, there was a large Osiris cult in Greece at one point. That's really interesting. So in 1922, archaeologist Guy Bruton and others discovered immense quantities of black fossil bones in Egyptian shrines that were wrapped in linen and placed in kind of carved out graves. So is that what served as the body of Osiris? Is that what was? That's what they think. That's that's the guess. You know, there is no writing or text that confirms it. But I think maybe this like black is related to him, god of darkness, night, etc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can see that. I like that idea. Even St. Augustine, who lived in Carthage around 400 AD, wrote in The City of God, which is his, you know apologetics support of Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Some people refuse to believe that bodies were so much larger than they are today, but skeptics are generally persuaded by the evidence in the ground. The frequent discovery of incredibly large bones revealed by the ravages of time, the violence of streams, or other events. I love that this is nonsense propagated by science. (laughs) Like propagated by evidence. I mean, there was evidence. I mean, these, be- these bones help people understand the past and reconcile their myths and histories with modern times. A Roman poet wrote in the first century about traveling to see what was even then an ancient shrine, saying the dangers of land and sea, greedily seeking the tales of old lore passed from folk to folk. A gazing at these relics, we relive the ancient times. I absolutely love that quote. I love it. It's fantastic. So some of these trends did continue into Europe in the Middle Ages. One example is King Tetubacus, who was the giant king of the Germanic tribes that was defeated in 105 BC by the Romans. 
He was totally the progenitor of the Giants of Potsdam. You never know. (laughs) But his colossal bones and teeth were discovered in 1613 in southern France and exhibited. Now, in 1984, a paleontologist determined it was the tooth of a dinotherium, an extinct elephant, and one of the largest mammals to have ever lived. So, a mammoth bigger than a mammoth, kind of? The biggest of. Oh, my gosh. The elephant progenitors. And really goes into modern times as well, such as with the giant of Castlenau. So this refers to three bone fragments, a humerus, tibia, and ephemeral midshaft that was discovered by Georges Vacher de la Pouge in 1890 in the sediment used to cover a Bronze Age burial mound in France. He published in La Nature. Which is French for the nature. You're correct. I think it unnecessary to note that these bones are undeniably human, despite their enormous size. The volume of the bones are more than double the normal pieces to which they correspond. Judging by the usual intervals of anatomical points, they also involve length almost double. The subject would have been a likely size of 11 feet 6 inches. But were they human bones? Good question. But were they? The London Globe quoted Professor Kiner, who, while admitting that the bones are those of a very tall race, nevertheless finds them abnormal in dimensions and apparently of morbid growth. They undoubtedly reopen the question of the giants of antiquity, but do not furnish sufficient evidence to decide it. So where are they now? And did they ever find out more information and get their science for it? They were sent to be further studied, and uh, no one knows where they are now. (laughs) Fine! So still not adequate evidence to decide it i know and i i go back and forth on if it was a hoax or not Mm. it was like was it a hoax or was he just a shitty anthropologist and was like oh well these deer bones are definitely you know something like that or was it somebody who had one of these incredibly rare conditions that whose proportions would have been off it could be and his calculations were wrong yeah because 11 feet six inches is too much Says you. Yeah, but it could have been like nine feet something or, you know, like a little less and it would have fit. One little tidbit that makes me think it might have been a hoax or at least someone played off of it was that they did find three other giant skeletons in a cemetery in Montpellier, France, right after this. I think someone was just inspired. I think he was just shoddy. I think most likely that's what it is. And then somebody was like, oh, I shall create my own Six giants of Cardiff. Castle no Cardiff giant. But yeah, so it's just so interesting to see how, you know, you get these differences with Cardiff. You know, you're looking at that age of wonder. With heroes, they are validating their history and myths through it. Right. Can you read that quote about the Lord Allure? I just want to go back to that for a second, because I think that that's such a great summary of like what these people were looking for. When they went out searching for giant. The dangers of land and sea, greedily seeking the tales of old lore, passed from folk to folk, we relive the ancient times. And so I think the obvious question to ask is, what if you could find that kind of inspiration, those kind of colossal characters, without facing danger and peril? Transversing the seas. What if they came to you? And what if they were alive? What do you mean? Like TV? Well, yeah, that's fun. I do like the giants in Lord of the Rings, like the big, big, big ones. 
I think that that idea of like searching for the past or the lore that's passed from folk to folk that drove the appeal of the circus giants. Yeah, the freak shows. Right, like our buddy. Our buddy Byrne was among these. Well, he was his own freak show. (laughs) So giants were among the freaks that traveled with circuses. And the term freak has long been controversial, going back all the way to 1898, when circus workers in London protested the term. And they tried to get the term prodigies to catch on. But it never really took hold in America because we're mean. And Leslie Fielder, a literary critic, pointed out in 1993 that the word freak is perhaps as obsolescent as the freak show itself, but it still had a certain resonance. Now, one staple of the obsolescent freak show was the giant. And we've always wanted to show them off. Like the Potsdam Giants. Right. There are many accounts of unusually tall men being used as show guards at palaces or forts, etc. But as soon as we started traveling people around just because they looked different, we were going to have giants. They were going to be part of the crew. Of course. And there was a procedure. There were little tricks of the trade that helped them appear a little bit larger than they might have actually been. Were they stealing some ideas from Frederick? Yes. The hat was a key component. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the banners that they would display outside or the barkers or whatever, the people advertising for them might tack on an additional foot to their height. Just, you know. I mean, no one's going to measure them. They were not allowed to. Of course not. They signed contracts that said that they would not allow themselves to be measured. And they would also be seen standing on a platform above everyone else. Forced perspective. Mm -hmm. High heels were worn by men and women. And men often wore shirts with the sleeves too short to make it appear that their arms were impossibly long. And women's dresses would be built much the same way. And women also wore elaborate headdresses. And men wore 10-gallon cowboy hats or centurion helmets, like, you know, Goliath-looking ones. The publicity photo was a key component of the giant staging as well, because they would be shot from an extreme angle. They'd be photographed with little people, like with Tom Thumb. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you know some of the etchings of Byrne, the mm-hmm. Irish giant, even the, in the etchings, they had him with local dwarves. Right. And then they would also have people staged as like a man of average height who were like four feet, 10 inches tall or whatever. And then they would use stage props in the photos, like little chairs and stuff that were meant to look like a normal size chair. You know, there was no wink and nod about it. It was just put in the photo to accentuate the subject's size. There had to be some interesting characters. Well, apparently, during the time of P.T. Barnum's museum, in addition to his real Cardiff giant that was not real, he had a pair of giants on display there who allegedly got in a fight and grabbed some props that were used for other acts, like the sword swallower and like a mallet or something. Did he start charging people Well, he told them to stop it until he could build, like charge people for admission. That sounds and right. And they thought it was so funny that they laughed it off and went on about their business. But as we have been looking at heroes, I thought we would look at a circus giant who was alluding to that, who formed his character on the idea that giants are heroes. Makes sense. So this was a fellow named Johan Pertussen, and he was born in Iceland in 1913. By the time he was 20 years old, he was purported to, to be 8 feet 8 inches tall. Now, later accounts that I saw, like when he was not touring anymore, said that he was 8'2". And then 
on some websites where they claim to have gotten his postmortem measurements, they say that he was 7'1". 7'1"? That's a huge So, But then I know how people would exaggerate, so I don't know. He was tall. He was tall. With those platform shoes and a hat, he was definitely over (laughs) 8 feet. Now, supposedly he wore a size 24 shoe, and he was the only child who was exceptionally tall in his family. He left Iceland to tour Denmark in 1934. And his first act was very popular in continental music halls. And this consisted of two dwarfs playing a miniature accordion and a miniature marumba, while Johan stood between them playing various instruments that were Johan-sized. That's fantastic. He has a giant accordion. That's amazing. And then World War II broke out, and Johan was stranded in Copenhagen. And so during that time, he worked in shipyards while he waited out the war. Now, unlike a lot of other giants, he was not physically frail, and he enjoyed good health and worked physically demanding jobs with ease. And during this time, he also convinced the locals that he would like to play Santa. Really? He did. It was like, I'd be really good at it. And they're like, you're, you're a giant. Why, why would that be a fun thing for children? He's like, just watch. It's like, I've got a sickle. I can throw it down <laughs> a chimney. I will terrify them. It will be excellent. But he did play Santa for those years, too. And then he went back to touring Europe after the war was over. And while he was doing this, he was discovered by John Ringling. I've heard of him. Yes. And he was booked to join them in the 1948 season back in the States and offered $200 a week to appear in the sideshow. That's good money. It really was. That's one thing is these people earned, we've talked about before, they earned good money. Mm -hmm. Nobody else can do it. Now, he began selling giant rings as souvenirs, and this was kind of his trademark. Fantastic. They were rings that were meant to fit his finger, and you could usually put like three of your fingers in them. And a lot of them are still around today. Oh, I'm going on eBay right now. Oh my God, I want one. We, I really... we started our circus collection this we week. We did. In addition to finding bones, we started our circus collection. We found a CV uh, souvenir card for Major Tot. We did, and it was in pristine condition, and I was way too excited about it. (laughs) And the person running the shop was like, what is it? (laughs) Let us tell you. Now, he sold these rings, and they were called Lucky Rings on the marquee, and he had them produced in various colors of plastic, and some bore his likeness, and others just had his name. And some of the rings, especially in the early days, were very high-dollar items, and he would have them made of gold or silver, and like give them out to dignitaries that came to see him, or he would sell them to affluent people who frequented the sideshow. Now, some were also made in lead, and this version was called the pot metal ring. More affordable. Mm-hmm. And the rings were sold with a large postcard or a CV, and it featured a photo of Johan, a much smaller woman, in a bathing suit, which was scandalous. Of course. Scandalous. I'll but, take two. But it made use of trick photography, which made her seem even smaller. She was standing behind him and a little lower on a hill. And there's, of course, forced perspective that makes them look very disparate in size. Now, Johan had always had a keen business acumen. And while wintering in Florida, he would set up a little booth at flea markets and sell his rings and postcards. He realized early on that the best way to keep selling them was to change them in some way. And so he would change the color or the shape or something about them every year and be like, this is this year's edition. And so he could sell it to the same people over and over. He was. And the gimmick was eventually adopted and imitated by other tall men who exhibited themselves for money. So 
While with Ringling, in addition to tacking on this giant ring thing, he joined a sideshow under a manager named Glenn Porter. And it was under the management of Porter that Johan would develop his trademark. Now, before this, he had worn like Edwardian fashion. He'd worn like a tall top hat and like a little vest and looked like a dandy kind of, which I think was meant to be ironic. But Porter realized that Iceland's kind of Nordic. So he could play an ice giant. Mm, He had his wife, Marge, create a costume consisting of Viking regalia and a giant helmet. And Johan became known as the Viking giant and his marketability soared. Soon, Johan and his considerable business acumen, as previously mentioned, went solo. And he hit the road in a traveling single Osho, where he was the only attraction. And he managed to save $50,000 in five years. He also starred opposite of Jane Mansfield in The Prehistoric Woman in 1950. He played Gaudi, who was a prehistoric giant. And I mean, he looks like as stereotypical caveman as you possibly can imagine. Um, and Jane Mansfield is, of course, terrified of him in every frame. And then in 1980, he starred in the film Carney with Gary Busey and Jodie Foster. Wonderful. Now, there was an essay published called My Very Unusual Friend, written by Ward Hall. And he notes that Johan had an outgoing and friendly personality, an imposing stature, which made him very attractive to women that you would consider smaller than average. Oh, my. He continues, his home, his living trailer, his vehicles, his furniture, and clothing all had to be specially made to accommodate his size. He was a prominent member of both the Tampa Showman's Association and the International Independent Showman's Association. He was involved with charitable activities for many years, playing Santa Claus at Tampa clubs and Christmas parties for underprivileged children. And the IISA had special chairs built for Johan and for fat man Harold Svahn, which was nice of them. So it was reported that while he was retired... People were very nice to him, and the neighborhood children did not refer to him as the freak or the giant or anything like that. They called him Mr. Johan, and he was good friends with all of them. I mean, he was Santa. You don't want to put him on your naughty list. No. You don't want to sickle toss down your chimney. But one woman asked him once, how old are you? And he said, I'm 55. And she said, oh, goodness, and you're still alive. (laughs) And he says, well, yes, from where I am, I can see St. Peter. And he says that I won't fit through his gate, so I have to stay here. Ah, so he was clever, He too. was very clever. And he was, he was kind of adorable. And he kept the big beard that was part of his Viking look and kind of embodied that forever. He did eventually start wearing, like, more Florida retiree, Tommy Bahama-inspired fashion, even though it all had to be custom-made. Now, according to Ward, author of My Very Unusual Friend, after a bridge game at the Showman's Club on a cold winter night, he fell in his yard and could not get up. And he lay there through the night and had to be hospitalized after he was found by a neighbor the following morning. And then his brother came from Iceland to collect him, and they returned to their home country together, where Johan died a few months later. And this was in 1984. And there are two museums set up kind of honoring him. He's in the Tampa Showman's Museum, because there are a lot of former circus performers who live in that area. But there's also, at the site of his grave, a Johan spectacular. And so he warmed my heart because he was witty and he was a Viking and he knew how to do. But this is a much more recent example than our age of wonder, P.T. Barnum. Right. He's definitely on the later end of the dime shows and circus freaks. So we would be remiss if we did not talk about Barnum's giants because you know they had to be the most 
wondrous giants. He'd tell you so. Oh, yes. He would. And it just so happens that one of Barnum's giants was a real giant warrior. Really? Really. But I'm not going to start with him. I'm going to start with Anna. So Anna Swan was born in Nova Scotia, and she went to work for Barnum when she was 17. Her father was a Scottish immigrant who was only 5'4", and her mother was 5 feet tall. She was the third of 13 children, and she weighed 18 pounds when she was born. When she was born in 1846. At age six, she was as tall as her mother. And by age 15, she reached seven feet tall. Now, she would eventually grow five and a half more inches, and it's said that she weighed 350 pounds. She was a very intelligent and engaging woman. She was a talented musician and loved literature. She sang and played the piano, and once she played Lady Macbeth. Oh, that's frightening. Which I love. (laughs) She gave lectures on giants at Barnum's Museum, and like many performers, she lived there. And while residing there, a fire broke out. The fire? Yeah. (laughs) Did she make it? So much was destroyed. Well, she made it. But legend has it that the firefighters couldn't fit her through the doors that weren't flaming, like through like a side door. She had to come in through the main doors. And so a loft derrick was brought in to cut a hole in the outer wall for her to use to escape. But Barnum, who in my best estimation was probably just annoyed that he did not think of the story first, deemed the account facetious. (laughs) You think he'd try to sell that? He was already selling everything else, I guess. Because she was not interested in the being part of the traveling shows. So she would have teas at the museum. And they were little receptions. She would go to notables' homes. So people who could afford it is what that translates to. And entertain. And I think people were especially charmed by her because she was a very, like, genteel. She was a proper lady. Proper lady. And, and she this was, was having tea. And this was just shocking to see this giant woman not being a barbarian, I guess. Not dressing up as a caveman to scare actresses. Right. By her 22nd birthday, she was 7 feet 11 inches tall and weighed 413 pounds. Now, eventually she would join a traveling circus. And as part of her act, Anna would put a tape measure around her waist and then a lady would come out of the audience and put it around her waist. The tape would go around the average woman's waist about three times. Now, she turned the American West and Europe between 1869 and 1871, and she met Queen Victoria, who, in her infinite oddity, was just taken with her. (laughs) I believe that. I mean... A British journalist at the time described her. She towers above men when stood up, and most women when sat down. She has an oval face and is softly spoken with a gentle voice. Now, while on tour in Europe... Anna met the very dashing Captain Martin Van Buren Bates. Oh, no. I love how all the old people are named after presidents. I know. Like the whole name. It was so good. Romance followed as the two super people found themselves drawn to each other, says an article from the time. Let me tell you a little bit about Martin Van Buren Bates. He was born November 9th of 1845 in Whitesburg, Kentucky, And he was originally known as the Giant of Letcher County. That sounds like a story. Right? A tall tale. Uh No one could say. Uh No one could say. And his family was also average size, but he eventually grew to be 7 foot 2 inches. Some reports say 7'9 or 7'11, whatever. He also claimed to weigh 525 pounds. 
A contemporary article says Martin's mother was deceived by his rapid elongation and came to the natural conclusion that he must be delicate. She forbade him to help with household chores until she became convinced that he was stronger than his older brothers. You won't have to wonder if they consummated anything in a loft. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Happens to the best of us. Now, he was originally called Big Boy Bates in his early years as an affectionate nickname. An uncle supposedly christened him thusly upon seeing him on his 11th birthday and exclaiming, that's a mighty big boy by heck, (laughs) which tickles me. Now, he was attending college in Virginia when the war between the states broke out and he joined the Confederate Army. He enlisted in the 5th Kentucky Infantry and eventually he became a first lieutenant and later a captain. Yankees spread rumors about the Confederate giant who was as big as five men and fights like 50. That would be... So frightening to see coming at you in a battlefield. Ah! Puff of gunpowder smoke. And then it clears and it keeps clearing and keeps clearing and you're like, fuck, I left my slingshot. (laughs) So he used a 71 caliber horse pistol that had been especially made for him at Tredegar Ironworks in Richmond. And he had two of them and he strapped them across his chest in black leather holsters And he also had a saber that was 18 inches longer than a standard weapon. This guy, like, I mean, this was frightening. I just. uh. He's their mascot of nothing else. He's scary as hell, you know? I have a feeling he was more than just their mascot. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. So he was actively involved in fighting. He was wounded at the Cumberland Gap. And he was captured, but he later escaped from the prisoner of war camp. And you have to wonder if he just, like, tapped a guy on his shoulder and was like, let me go. Move. Yeah, because there's no way he was sneaking out of a hole in the gate. right? There are varying accounts of what happened to Martin after the war. You know, one story has it that he told his nephew, John Wright, I don't want any part of the trouble that's coming to these hills. I've seen enough bloodshed and I don't want any more. And then he ran away with the circus. But there's a more colorful version of the family legend, which I will share with you now. He returned to his Kentucky home and found that local unionists had captured one of his brothers and had tormented him with bayonets to a slow and painful death. This enraged the giant, and he gathered his men and searched out the murderers. The men were rounded up along with their children and their wives and brought to a clearing in the woods. Two slender black oaks grew a dozen feet apart. A pole was lashed to the trees about ten feet up, and a round beech log was cut and stripped of its branches, and placed on the ground beneath. Eight nooses hung down from the pole. The giant appeared on his giant horse, his giant sword and pistols gleaming, his eyes black and shining with contempt and hatred. His men appeared out of the gloomy mist, herding the prisoners before them, each man's hands bound behind his back. Bates waited a few minutes before signaling that the log should be rolled away, and the eight bound figures dropped a few inches and choked slowly to death. With swords and cocked pistols, the women and children were kept at bay. No one could render aid. The Yankees were a quarter of an hour dying, and the old giant told people not to touch the dead or to take them down from the gallows. They were to hang there and rot by the road. Their corruption warning all passerby the consequences of killing a Bates. If anyone violated his order, he would die in the same way. Absolutely no mercy would be shown. In addition, his family would be destroyed, his house burned, and his stock killed. Take warning, the giant said, because no other warning will be given. Then he and his men rode away, leaving the dead to swing in the wind and their kin to mourn them through a monstrous nightmare. 
The bodies turned to skeletons before the giant came back, and only rattling bones left for burial. And then the old-timer takes a swig from his moonshine and says, At night, on a full moon, You can still hear him rattling. <laughs> they hear the giant hoofbeats marching away. So, yeah, that's one theory about why he had to run away and join the circus, because he killed eight Yankees. <laughs> Good reason. After the war, which they lost. Sweet guy. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, like, you would go to jail for sure, and then you would be executed for certain. If you could find a tall tree. <laughs> As I said, he could not stay in Letcher County. This wouldn't do. So he ran away and joined the circus. But before all of this, he had been a school teacher, which I love to imagine. One of his former students said, Well, I never did care about obeying a teacher, but that big boy Bates was a fella none of us boys ever sassed. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> we didn't dare. Why, he was so big, his voice just sort of rumbled like a bull bellowing. And he was very popular with his students. But after the war, he did decide just to tour around the United States, you know, being tall. And that began in 1865. And he was very popular. He was actually a friend of President Garfield and McKinley. Ah, good luck, Charm. Yeah. But while traveling abroad, he and Swan decided to marry. Wait. In England? Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Queen Victoria was like, let's have a giant wedding. Yes, she was. Play dolls. (laughs) Giant, giant dolls. So, just, just just, give me some of your hair. You know she took their hair. I'm not, there is no evidence of this, but I just, I don't think she asked though. Oh no. I think she just did it. Now she did dress up her dolls for the giant wedding. She gave Anna a voluminous gown of satin, white satin. And then she also presented a diamond ring that had like a cluster of diamonds in it. And then Bates... And maybe Anna, too. I'm not sure. It varies. The reports are different in different places. We're given this pocket watch, or these pocket watches, depending. At her order, the watches had been made of a size to correspond with the proportions of the recipients. The watches were as large as ordinary saucers. Moreover, they were gold and studded with diamonds and worth $1,000 each. Wow, they really got rewarded. That's a hell of a price tag for some hair. I want to be Queen Victoria's pet. (laughs) I know. Well, like, I just have this vision of her, like, taking her giant hair and putting it in Albert's hand and going, like, good night, dearies. No. She's my favorite old creepy crazy lady. So another write-up from the time describing the wedding said that Anna was a vision in her flowing dress, but Captain Bates looked a little peaked. Captain Bates, the bridegroom, may be pardoned for having looked rather less at his ease in a blue coat, white waistcoat, and gray or light-colored Trousers. A man may get used to being eight feet high, but to be eight foot high and to be stared at by a devout congregation of idlers on occasion of marrying a lady who is eight feet high also is a trying conjunction of matters. However, Captain Bates got through his difficulties tolerably well. Now, they were the tallest married couple on record, and they were continuously observed by various reporters. They did many, many interviews, and one of those is from the St. Louis Globe Democrat from April 1879. And the reporter speaking about himself in third person, because that is a classy thing to do. Wonderful. Says, a reporter from the Globe Democrat was dispatched to interview the gigantic couple and ascertain the truth in regard to them for the benefit of our readers. It was no small job. Ha ha ha. 
And it must be acknowledged that in all of his reportorial experience, the writer had never before been detailed to tackle such weighty subjects. That's a knee slapper. Yeah. There you go. This same reporter was pleased to inform us that these people were not monstrosities at all, but two perfectly formed gentlefolk. And he remarked that Anna was exceedingly fine looking and that Martin Van Buren Bates was a perfect Apollo in figure. And he insists that both people are of more than average intelligence. It's so interesting how often they like go to the trouble of saying, no, they're normal. Or like they're actually quite nice to be around yeah. or whatever. It, yeah, They're not yes. monsters. And Barnum's like, stop it. You're ruining my game, man. Another 1879 account states that they represent linked sweetness, long drawn out. Another clever writer. Mm-hmm. So now I believe, I think that I should share with you some choice excerpts from Martin Van Buren Bates' autobiography. It was the 19th day of May, 1872, that our first child was born, only to die at birth. Doctors Cross and Buckland were the physicians in charge. It was a girl weighing 18 pounds and being 27 inches tall. This loss affected us both, and by the advice of the doctors, I took my wife upon the continent. There, we traveled for pleasure, only given receptions and requested to do so by royal command. After a short tour of Ireland, we decided to return to America. We left England on the second day of July, 1874, upon the city of Antwerp. We journeyed west for pleasure. While in Ohio, I purchased a farm in Seville, Medina County. It consisted of 130 acres of good land, and I built a house upon it designed especially for our comfort. The ceilings have a height of 14 feet. The doors are 8 and one half feet in height. The furniture was all built to order, and to see our guests make use of it recalls most forcibly the good Dean Swift's traveler in the land of Brodingnag. I had determined to become a farmer, so I stocked my farm with the best breeds of cattle, most of them being full-blooded and shorthorns. My drought horses are the Norman breed, carriage horses, 18 hands, high, and a couple of Clydesdale mares constitute my home outfit. I am thus specific because I am continually asked about these matters. My rest was not long-lasting, for yielding to the solicitations of managers, I consented to again travel. The seasons of 1878, 1879, and 1880 found us leading attractions of the W.W. Cole Circus, while we have during these years been blessed with many things, affliction again visited us on the loss of a boy born the 19th day of January, 1879. He was 28 inches tall and weighed 22 pounds and was perfect in every respect. He looked at birth like an ordinary child of six months. With this exception, our lot has been one of almost uninterrupted joy. Now, eventually the couple did return to Seville, Ohio, where they lived in their custom-built house. It was an 18-room mansion. And the back part of the house was average size. Why? For their servants. Oh, okay. And their guests. And they had like average size chairs put in some rooms and stuff. Because, you know, they would have people over and they looked silly. Like you said, they looked like they were in Brodenag. (laughs) Now, another fun fact about their home in Seville was that the local Baptist church was, you know, their regular home church. And they would go every week and stand in the back. Because none of the pews would support them. And so eventually, Martin had two of the pews put pulled up and paid to install a giant pew for he and Anna to sit in. Perfect. I think it's still there. I could be wrong. Their house is definitely still there. Oh, I want to go. I know, me too. But the loss of the second child was very traumatic. And there were notes written up by the doctors about what 
transpired. Anna carried the pregnancy to term and went into labor lasting 36 hours before her contractions just stopped and the baby was stuck at the shoulders and it was not fully delivered for another day and doctors had to be called in from all over and they used forceps and bands because of the child's immense size and this baby died shortly after birth. And his tombstone in town, which is in Seville, reads simply Babe. And they decided that they were not going to try anymore for children. It was This was the second loss, and it was too hard on both of them. But they were always very kind to the local children and very fondly remembered by their community. Anna would allow children to climb up in her lap, and the gruff captain would actually quiet fussy children by holding his giant pocket watch up to their ear. Oh, that's fantastic imagery. <laughs> Now, Anna died suddenly in 1888 when she was 44 years old. Some reports say she died of kidney failure, but it's hard to know. And others claim that she succumbed to heart failure after struggling with a thyroid goiter for some time previously. Probably was heart failure. Yeah. Very common cause of death in people with gigantism and acromegaly. I don't think Anna had acromegaly because she grew so early. She didn't have the joints and she didn't, you know, like her finger, her hands are dainty. It's hard to say. Like, I've been thinking about that since we started talking about it because she was born so large. You know, usually they are born of normal size and then start to grow. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to say. It's hard to say. Now, after her death, Captain Bates telegraphed a casket company in Cleveland to send a casket to hold the remains of a person who had been eight feet tall. The casket company, thinking the size was a misprint, sent a normal-sized casket. Oh, no. Bates was furious, and he had to delay the funeral by three days until the special casket could be constructed and shipped to Seville. And he also ordered a statue to place on their monument, which was a likeness of Anna, and that had to be shipped from Europe. But he didn't wait for that to do the funeral. It's a really striking monument. You should look it up. It's the Bates Memorial in Seville, Ohio. Following his wife's funeral, Bates decided he was not going to take a chance that this was going to happen to him and went ahead and ordered his own casket, and kept it in his barn. Anna's obituary stated that she was as kind as she was big and that she and Captain Bates were highly respected at Seville, where they lived. And he did later remarry a woman named Annette Weatherby, who was five feet tall. Five feet tall? No way. And from all accounts, this does not improve his disposition. He became a grumpy old man, and he took to chewing tobacco. And when he was really old, he was known to spit it out at people he did not like. He died in 1919, and the funeral director brought in eight strong men to be pallbearers because he apparently had a little bit of Barnum's hucksterism in him as well. Whenever he sold tickets. (laughs) The coffin was so long that it stuck out of the hearse, and the doors had to be held closed with rope. Like a weird Ohio blurb about this says, Once giants walked among us, at least they did in Medina County, in the farming village of Seville, Ohio. In the Mound Hill Cemetery in Seville, Ohio, there is a tall stone statue of a woman. Some say it is supposed to be a likeness of Anna Swan Bates. It stands over the graves of Anna and her husband, Martin Van Buren Bates, once known worldwide as the world's tallest married couple. Now, Seville today is, like, pleased to have had their giants. They still talk about them. Really? They're still revered. Cool. Um, They're honored every year in the village with Giant Fest. Let's go. I want to go. This is a reason to go to Ohio. We didn't have one before. Oh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I guess. That's it. There's so many good scary stories, like Louisiana, Texas, And for some reason, Ohio. Yeah, because it was the wild frontier. But the mission statement of Giant Fest in Seville is to provide an enlightening and affordable experience that showcases artifacts, artisan, craftsmen, and historical documentation 
in ways that preserve and protect the uniqueness of the Giants of Seville and the village's rich history. They want to connect the public with the lives of Martin Van Buren Bates and Anna Swan Bates, and thus inspire new generations to carry on their legacy. To enthusiastically generate awareness of Seville's ongoing efforts to create life-size sculptures of the Giants in memory of their contributions as ambassadors of goodwill. And there's also a children's book called The Giant of Seville by Dan Anderson. Which we may have bought. (laughs) Might have purchased that. But I think our last word on giants should really come from the Bates. Here's an observation from Anna's obituary. Every boy's memory is stored with tales of bloody giants such as Bugaboo Bill and the fellow whom Jack the Giant Killer slew. A fanciful stories of similar nature. In reality, giants are the most peaceable of mankind, and very big women are almost always timid and tender-hearted. It raises a smile to think of a sighing and sentimental maiden weighing 500 pounds, and the paragrapher has exhausted himself in witty calculations as to the length of time it takes the tender emotions to travel from the heart to the frontiers of her person. But it is anything but funny to the subject. She loves often, with an ardor corresponding to her size and pursuant to the unusual perversity of her nature. She is apt to love a small or average-sized man. Many instances are on record of the marriages of such oddly assorted couples, and well it is that these gigantic ladies are tender-hearted, for a matrimonial row with such a one is not to be thought of without a shudder. Oh, no. <laughs> the Greeks have given us the prettiest stories about giants, how they made war on the gods and flung mountains at them, how they were imprisoned and struggled till the volcano overflowed, how some of them forged thunderbolts for Jupiter, and how old Cyclops, the meanest of the lot, was made drunk and had his only eye jabbed out by Ulysses. They also gave us the name of the giantess, meaning born of the earth. They were supposed to have been gendered by the blood of Uranus falling on fertile soil. It is quite likely that the Greeks got these notions from fossil bones, just as millions of modern people have found giant bones. The notion that men were formerly of immense stature is among the most persistent of popular delusions. Several years ago, a showman traversed the West with a skeleton seated in an immense chair and surmounted by a hideous human skull fashioned out of plaster for the purpose, and set with frightful glass eyes. And with it, he exhibited the certificates of several eminent surgeons that it was a veritable human skeleton. The sight made even a stout man shudder. It was no doubt responsible for thousands of nightmares. Now there is no proof that there was ever a man ten feet high, but few have reached nine feet, and many may have exceeded eight. While in every age of which we have record, there have been women weighing over 500 pounds. Captain Bates, husband of the recently deceased lady, is eight feet high, yet he served through the war in the Confederate cavalry and was thoroughly reconstructed without any special act. So you can see, like, even at the time of her death, they're thinking of these stories. Right, it's so interesting that they're pulling back to the fossils and the Greeks and the stories from ancient times. But I really think that while this guy's good, this, this guy writing the obit for Anna, Martin deserves the last word. In an interview, he says, I served in the 5th Kentucky Infantry during the war. Confederate, you know. But it was one of the bravest brigades the world ever saw. Since then, I've been amusing myself mostly by traveling about looking at little men and women, the reporter says. The ready-made goods stores are of little use to you, Captain. He says, not a bit. There's not a single garment or article I can use, but what has to be specially made for me? Does your strength correspond with your size? The reporter asks. He says, I think it would if I developed it. And the reporter says... Did you ever hear of any person as large as yourself? Oh, no, sir. I am satisfied that I am the largest man in the world and probably as large as was ever born. 
I've devoted much time to studying the subject, and I'm satisfied that there never existed a race of giants, as claimed. There is actually nothing to corroborate the theory. They claim that men of gigantic stature are vouched for in the Bible. I claim we know nothing of them. It's so interesting to see how the stories of giants have been used throughout time. They can go as far back as the Bible and the fundamentalist preachers are what we've seen with the photo hoax that we started the episode with, where they're using it to help justify the Quran or to help justify Hindu texts. You know, they can be used to support existing beliefs and stories and to verify them and to help us connect even further with the stories that are part of us and that are part of our culture. And so I think that there's a reason that we know about or that more people maybe know about the Cardiff Giant than know about the Bates tomb in Seville, Ohio. Because the Cardiff Giant was presented as a wonder and was discovered and was brought out. But these are real people that were part of a community who lived normal lives and had pocket watches and a pew in church. And there's something, whether Queen Victoria liked them or not, I'm sure they were amusing, but this isn't what we use giants for. We don't want them to be ordinary people. You need them to be larger than life. But the story of Anna Swan and Martin Van Buren Bates helps bring home the idea that they really are people. Perfect that, gentle folk. <laughs> and that they lived a happy life. And that they tried to have children. And they had those tragedies. And they had happy times where they went to church. And met Queen Victoria. Met Queen Victoria and, and you know, created a farm and a life for themselves outside of the freak shows and the circuses. Because they weren't just giants. They were also people. And so while we may go looking for the lore that passes from folk to folk and think that we see it in these giant skeletons or giant remains or even these giant people, there's nothing to corroborate the theory, according to Martin Van Buren Bates. So while we have always sought out the bones of giants to represent our heroes and legitimize our history, we've probably been unable to see that had there been a race of giants, they probably would have gone to church and had a farm thrown some stones, and gone on with their days. Being of extraordinary size did not make them any less human. And that's not just a story. It's not just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.